1: What is cracking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my co-host Adam Frommel today. Still have a loaded podcast for you though. I'm going to do a solo mailbag since we solicited your questions and Adam can't be here for it. I'm going to get into both the Celtics and the Nuggets being down 3-1 to one using some questions as an impetus to talk about what they'll need to do ahead of their game fives. And then there will be obviously other mailbag questions. And then we get into our Milwaukee Bucks look ahead. Just a fascinating team this offseason. I've brought in Ty Windish of the Eurostep podcast, also of the Blue Wire Network. Um, You can follow him on Twitter, at Ty Windish. That's at T-I-W-I-N-D-I-S-C-H. It was a great conversation. It it runs long, but I've been throwing timestamps up there for everybody. So I hope you've been enjoying these. Hope you enjoy these team look-aheads. Um, To that point, please... Subscribe and download all of our episodes if you're listening to us. That's the biggest way to help us. Um, The second biggest way to help us, and that has kind of stalled a little bit, we would implore you to head over to iTunes, whether you use it or not, search Hardwood Knox, and throw us a five-star rating, write a review. That helps us out a ton as well. And then, of course, word of mouth. Recommend us to your friends, family, frenemies, anybody you know. Steal people's phones if you're properly socially distancing and can steal people's phones, and subscribe them to Hardwood Knox On their behalf, you can do it, and they will thank you later. Last but certainly not least, though, shout out to our sponsors this week who make this podcast possible, Bet Online and Indeed. You'll be hearing from them throughout this podcast. And really, before we get started, uh, just remember to follow us too, this podcast at Hardwood Knox on Twitter. Head over to youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox, subscribe there, like our videos. That, that helps a bunch too. But look, hey, let's get into this mailbag. I feel kind of weird doing a podcast alone. It's been a minute and a half since that really happened. We'll get started with the do, 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 do. why don't we why don't we get going with the Celtics here since their their series could end against the Miami Heat as you're listening to this. This question comes from Jeff Nicholas, who actually has two questions in this episode because they were so good and I actually commandeered one from him, but he says, "I keep hearing media folks referring to Miami zone as simple, a high school D, or even a junk D. Could you guys talk about the things Miami is doing that differentiate their zone from the ones people learned about at, uh, the Boys Club?" So I have not seen anyone call it a junk D, particularly when it's been so effective. And look, I'm not this X's and O's savant. I wish that I could watch and see and think the game the way that so many others can. Um, that's just not that's not my brand, but. That being said, Boston has struggled against the zone all year statistically, and so it's kind of no surprise that they've also grappled with what Miami's doing. I think some of the things that I've noticed and, and read about that seems to differentiate Miami is if they're going to go in a 2-3 zone, they don't really seem scared about putting their two best wing defenders like just up front and then um, you know, you could plant your two weaker defenders, but behind them, and you're going to try and just coax action. Then, to let's assume Bam Adebayo is on the court, and they'll direct uh, offenses to um, to him that way, and that's worked for them it seems in the times that they have gone to it. And it also, I mean, when you have Jay Crowder and and Jimmy Butler up at the top there, it feels like you can force Boston into a ton of more turnovers, and then just really get some nice contests in there where you're not going to give up uh, as many let's i don't want to say wide open threes but easier threes and that has been the case if you look at what's been going on in this series um they're forcing turnovers on sixteen point five percent of boston's possessions right now that is up from boston during the regular season where they were excuse me they were right around i think thirteen point one percent uh was where they landed thirteen point six percent excuse me so so that number's up then if you look at just the types of threes that they're taking um in this series 10 point 10 flat of boston's attempts have gone on have gone straight contested from beyond the arc not heavily contested um it's with a defender between two and four feet away that is basically double just the percentage that they had going during the, the regular season and so the other thing that you notice when you watch miami is that they just like they work uh, depending on who's on the floor, but their, their rotations can be on point And so, so they're going to force the Celtics to work um, in late into the shot clock. And that might account for some of these lower percentage looks that they're then getting. And not every defense is going to be built to do that. And so your, the ball movement for Boston at points too, is like kind of been good on some of these possessions, but you just turn around and like uh, Jay Crowder's right there or Jimmy Butler's right there. And it ends up being a, a huge deal. So I think more so than anything, the Heat's personnel has kind of allowed them to maximize the times that they've gone to Zone D, and then they also don't necessarily need to use it as a crutch if Boston busts it up um, the way that it kind of did at points in in Game 3, and I think that's really helped them, and it, this question kind of dovetails nicely with what Boston kind of has to do to win this series, and that that's they got to solve the zone defense somehow, and maybe that's that's not the way to go because, or that's not something that we can expect from them just because they've struggled against it all season. You would help hope that having Gordon Hayward back would maybe help. At the same time, like they're still not teaming with guys who are going to put a ton of pressure on the rim. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are probably your two best options. It just doesn't look like Kemba Walker has the juice to do that right now. Uh, Marcus Smart not necessarily not necessarily someone you can rely on to do that so frequently and that's kind of always been not a huge knock against the celtics but it was definitely something people focused on with jason tatum's game he's gotten better at it but when you're just looking at what miami is putting out out there if you're going to have jimmy butler and and jay crowder just as that first line of defense against guys who are going to try and attack the basket like that's going to get difficult and failing that then you're just going to have to hit just your jump shots at these higher clips and so you look at it we can look at this series in some but if you look at game four specifically which is a game that boston by the way could have won uh they're going 14 of 40 from three and like that's fine but you're probably going to need to hit more than that um going up against this if you're going to take 43 pointers would be my point. So you're only a plus 12 uh, from beyond the arc against Miami in that game, which was 10 of 37 themselves. And you know, look, Boston's defense was good in that game. If you're looking for sort of adjustments, I thought they did all right. And Tyler Hero just hit a bunch of difficult shots. So you, you, Gordon, uh, Gordon Dragic did not have his best game of the series. Jimmy Butler was just so, so as well when you're looking at their efficiency. So that boston seems to i don't want to say figure it out miami there but they're they're definitely okay it's that they're gonna have to get just more consistent uh offensively and i don't know if they have what it takes if miami's going to continue to lean on this zone which it seems like they will i don't know if they necessarily have the the personnel right now to break it let's move on to the nuggets lakers series though this one's going to come from jordan scott uh He asked, thoughts on this, which is a tweet that says Monte Morris is slashing 65-60-84 in this series, LMAO, WTF. That is the appropriate reaction. And after game four, uh, Monte Morris is now slashing about 63-43-77. We'll get deeper into this series. I'm just using this question as a launching point. It's the only Nuggets Lakers question we had. Monte Morris is in the conversation, probably subtly because I don't feel like he's not talked about nationally, but as the best backup point guard in the NBA. And it probably helps a little bit that you can't really consider Marcus Smart or Fred Van Fleet, that guy, anymore. They were predominantly starters this year. Uh, the other names in the conversation, maybe Dennis Schroeder, Spencer Dimwitty could be right up there as well. But you just look at what Monte Morse is able to do. He does have usually great command of the game. Uh, a lot is made of how he just doesn't turn the ball over, and that's absolutely huge. Uh, he's someone who's going to be an efficient three-point shooter, doesn't necessarily need the ball in his hands. But he also has like this disarming sort of a attack to him where like he's not super explosive like he's going to take these little like push shots floaters in the lane and he'll get by guys so he's not afraid to go up against contact and he just does all these things so smartly and you know that amounts to just a super effective interesting player uh, you could get away with minutes of him and Jamal Murray playing together especially because of how Jamal Murray has been competing on defense I really like him don't want to you know get too far into the weeds here, but he's going to be a, a free agent after next season. And his next contract is going to be just fascinating. Uh, I don't know what he would end up landing, but it's certainly going to be more than the the pennies on the dollar he's making in, in Denver. He is, he's at 1.7 million non-guaranteed for next year. They are absolutely going to, to guarantee that though. But so game four for the Nuggets was, I don't know if you would call it a disaster because they only lose by six and definitely a winnable game for them. One, and we've said that a bunch this series. The things that I think stand out most, and you could say having Paul Millsap and Nikola Jokic in foul trouble at points definitely didn't help. And then even when Jokic was on the floor for a bunch of this game, it didn't feel like he was being too aggressive. That's that's like something. Um, the, the bigger things to me, and... It's even more so than than saying you can't, against this Lakers team, Like you you have to win the three-point battle. That's just how I come in looking at this. So yes, they were 10 of 28, 35.7%. That's Denver, but L.A. was 10 of 30. And so when you know that L.A. is going to generate extra possessions on the offensive glass, and just because they're going to get out and, and transition a bunch, you have to win the three-point battle because the Denver just very clearly has better shooting personnel on their team, I would say. But you also have to look I think at this one at the second chance points. The Lakers outscored Denver 25 to 6 in second chance points in a 6-point game. And then just on top of that like the Lakers were plus 8 at the foul line. That's absolutely a, a killer. I-, I mean like you're you're giving up basically 27 points right there while tying them in in the three-point category. That's not going to be a great recipe to win. I don't necessarily know uh, how they can control the glass a little bit better. It felt like, you know, especially late in the game, like they weren't expecting shots earlier in the shot clock from the Lakers and then guys just weren't in position. But there's no reason Rondo should be grabbing an offensive rebound. Uh, so they, the Nuggets have to do a better job of, of keeping the the Lakers off the glass, specifically Dwight Howard just in small bursts. Look, Anthony Davis had one offensive rebound in this game and only five rebounds Overall, so it's it's not even him that was necessarily killing them. Like they're just getting out muscled and out hustled by Dwight Howard, and then the offensive rebounds just are coming like in miniature from everywhere. Where LeBron has one, I, I mentioned Anthony Davis has one, KCP has one, Danny Green has one, Rondo has two. Like that just that shouldn't be an actual thing, and so you're definitely going to have to tone that down. Uh, Leading into game five, if you want there to be a game six and look, the Nuggets have been here before the jokes are going to be made. I made one on Twitter that said the Nuggets are now up one to three on the Lakers in the Western Conference finals. We've seen that this is a mentally tough Denver team and that a bad performance that puts them on the ropes does not disqualify them from really just coming out and punching back. I would expect uh, Game 5, hopefully, to be a, a close one. That wasn't necessarily convincing. But just based off what we've seen, yeah, there's the chance that the Nuggets are just exhausted, exhausting. But in a game where they, like, far from executed perfectly, um, from where they were, there were were all these foul calls on Jokic and Millsap when they were guarding LeBron specifically, like, they were still in it. And look, if, if LeBron James doesn't make the switch to Jamal Murray defensively later in the game and, and put the screws to him... Are we talking about a Denver victory? Or am I still watching this game because it went into overtime? It did seem like LeBron got away with some, we'll call it light hacking, um, that that should have been called. But the fact that he was able to hang on that assignment late in the game, like Jamal Murray was just absolutely on a tear in this one. 32 points, 8 assists, just been really, just turned perception For me of him completely in these playoffs where I still viewed him as this up and down player who maybe didn't necessarily peak, but I wasn't sure if he was bankable. I think he's bankable now. And if if he's just going to be more valuable to you in the playoffs, as we've talked about on this podcast in the regular season, I mean, that's absolutely fine. Um, and, and maybe another thing you could point to from Denver is like you're going to just have to get better wing minutes here. Um, Jeremy Grant had to go 43 deep in this one, in part, again, because Millsap uh, and even Jokic a little bit, like those two, having them in foul trouble hurts. But Gary Harris is giving you nothing on offense, and so he's playing uh, sub-20 minutes in this one. Torrey Craig, you just can't trust the shooting one of four from beyond the arc. Can you get away with playing him for more than 20 minutes? And then it seemed like head coach Mike Malone um, was really throwing shade at, Michael Porter Jr. for his defense in this one. He was relatively efficient in the minutes he played: five of eight from the floor, three of six from three, including this like awesome step back. It was earlier in the game. Uh, I don't know where they're going to look to aside from Grant to get more consistent wing minutes. And look, Grant wasn't even like great offensively, but he is at least like the energy is there and he's attacking and he's probably you know you're not going to count on him to to shoot too well from three all the time, but he's been 39 plus percent for the past two seasons coming off a huge game there but you need it you need a harris um game to pop or you need michael porter jr just be better with his uh, rotations and if you can get one of those things it's, it's that more likely or just get a tory craig hits threes game like I, I don't really know that's where i'm at maybe you go to P, pj dozier more um that's probably another option which weird that we're talking about them potentially doing that and you have to look you have to hope that both your you know, two of your three primary bigs in Jokic and Millsap aren't in this much foul trouble because I don't. This doesn't feel like a Mason Plumlee series right now. I'm just not going to lie. Minus seven in in thirteen, uh, almost fourteen minutes for him. But of these two series, though, if I had to guess, where we're most likely to see a game five. This is going to crush my soul. I I think it's Boston, Miami who feel more evenly matched. And that goes against everything we've seen from the Nuggets. I picked the Nuggets in seven in this series. That was mostly out of sheer stubbornness, though. Um, Something about, I don't know that the Lakers have necessarily figured out the Nuggets, but Anthony Davis has just been absolutely world-beating in this series. Like, the shots he's hitting, I talk a lot about how he's so good offensively because so much of his scoring comes within the flow of everything, he is the flow for points in this. like hitting these ridiculously difficult jumpers. We saw his game winner in uh game two. It was, and then like you look at his fourth quarter efficiency in this series. This comes from the, the fast break breakfast podcast, 92.5 true shooting in the fourth quarter of this series. I mean like that's just melting my mind right now, even thinking about it. And I, you don't necessarily have an answer for him. And the, the Nuggets as a team have been absolutely carved up, as we mentioned on on the last podcast, whenever Jokic is his primary defender. And it doesn't even matter if Davis is is finishing the play. The Lakers have just absolutely brutalized them in those, those situations. So a lot of things that are not tilting Denver's favor. I would say that the factors that they can control is you can be way more aggressive on the defensive glass and... Uh, you, you have I can't even say that they can control the wing minutes i I think it's can you shoot better from beyond the arc, like better than the Lakers those seem like more controllable things here, and I can't even say stay out of foul trouble is a controllable thing just because if LeBron gets going downhill and even with anthony davis like those are those are incredibly tough covers so they're they're going to need some of the stuff feels like it's beyond their control, but definitely the second chance point second chance points have to be limited for them to have a legitimate shot at making this third three to one comeback and if they do that, I don't even. I don't even know. I I think Twitter would just implode.
0: Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because it gives you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through September 30th, which is my birthday, so you know it's good.
1: Anyway, moving on to just around the league, I guess, although I think we will touch on the, the Nuggets again once more. This is the second question from Jeff Nicholas. He asks... Is it just me or is hiring a coach for the free agent he might be able to attract in several years a bad idea before even getting to Harden and D'Antoni never making the finals and having multiple ugly flameouts? So this is because of the report that said uh, the Sixers are at least partially intrigued by Mike D'Antoni as their coach because they believe that he could lure James Harden there in a couple of years. Uh, That is, you know, that is something. I I don't really know how else to say it. It definitely can't be the primary reason that you hire a Mike D'Antoni because James Harden is not scheduled for free agency, I believe, until 2023. And at that point, we're talking about in James Harden, who is going to be 34 at that point, having just wrapped up his age 33 season. I'm I'm actually going to double check his contract to make sure there wasn't a a player option on it, but I don't know why you're banking that far into the future. I guess there's the aspect of the trade because the Rockets do feel very combustible. So you're going to hire a coach based on the fact that he might help you trade for a player. Like you don't need Mike D'Antoni to trade for James Harden insofar as he ever gets on the chopping block. And so I misspoke. He does have the player option in 2022. So there's two years at that point, and then he will be 33 coming off his age, 32 season. You can't make the decision to hire Mike D'Antoni. Uh, just solely because of Harden, it just doesn't make any sense. I will say it does feel like you know Jeff pointed to Houston not having the best playoff success. It does really feel like uh, Harden and Mike D'Antoni had a good relationship, though. Like this didn't seem like a byproduct of a, of a failure b- between them. D'Antoni leaving Houston that felt more organizational. I don't know if maybe he didn't support the Westbrook trade or he was just really turned off by the way Tillman Frazier handled those those contract extensions over the. The off season, so no, that is not a valid reason to hire a coach. And look, I'm fairly intrigued by Mike D'Antoni in Philly, not just because he was, you know, there for a minute previously. A lot of people are just going to say, well, that's just not the type of team that he's going to coach. And I do think that Mike D'Antoni deserves a little bit more credit for being adaptable. Like this isn't Tom Thibodeau here, where the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that he's stubborn and and rigid and and just inflexible. Look at what he's done in Houston. Did you ever envision him as yes? Could you have said getting away? Um, From a team with a traditional center, sure. A team that's going to take like a zillion three-pointers every game, absolutely. But a team that's super ISO heavy, like that was never D'Antoni's shtick. And so there are things that he runs too. when you're looking at Houston's off-ball screening and uh, some other stuff that was pointed out by Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows, since he's in the running for the Pacers job as well. Like He can kind of work with finite spacing. And he had to for a big part of the season because you had Russell Westbrook and Clint Capella logging some minutes together, even though that wasn't when the Rockets were at their best. And I don't know that I would necessarily... He would be my first choice for Philly. Grading coaches is just so hard. I would probably like someone who's going to, I guess, be... I I don't even know. Maybe Mike D'Antoni is the best fit. You could say that you want someone who is going to optimize their offense with the personnel they have, but I'm really not sure who that is. You know, it's Kenny Atkinson. Like, he'll give them the shot profile. Like, he's the coach most likely to force Ben Simmons to take threes. But I, I don't necessarily know what that translates to. Um, I, I doubt that they're willing to go the, you know, first-time head coach route. I don't know that they're going to necessarily be looking for a, a defense-first guy either. Ty Lue feels like he would make sense there, just as someone who would hold them accountable. And he's also a pretty good offensive mind. Uh, when you're looking at his track record. So he'd probably be my top pick. I don't know where D'Antoni necessarily lands though beyond that, but that's a, that's a good question because it's topical, but no team should not be hiring a coach because he might help them get a player. They don't need him to get down the line who might not necessarily even become available. Uh, Just bizarre reasoning. If that, is even 10% of why they're not 10%, but like, if it's what, like 20% of the reason you're hiring Mike D'Antoni is because he might give you a, a chance at landing in, in elder James Harden in free agency. Uh, you know, I'm not, no, there's a chance that looked at the, if the Rockets are really going to implode and James Harden gets that itch to leave in 2022, he becomes available via trade, perhaps, um, depending on how the Rockets wrap up next season, obviously, and Philly's going to have the ammo unless they make a ton of moves before then to, to go after him. And you don't need Mike D'Antoni for, for that. Next question comes from Avid Endorsman, which is a great Twitter name uh, right now during these times. Is Jalen Brown going to be worth his contract? Uh, I believe he's at four years and $107 million, which includes guarantees and then likely incentives. And then he has about 8 million in unlikely incentives. So it could come up to 115 million. I'm going to say yes. And I don't know that it's much of a debate for me. He is like, we've seen him branch out on offense where he can take like dribble into these jumpers and he can put pressure on the rim if he's going to put the ball on the floor, but he is very plug and play on offense. Otherwise, uh. If you're looking for him to make the what seems like Jason Tatum has done, like that sized of an improvement as a passer, it doesn't feel like it's going to come. He's never shown that knack for making the the less obvious passes, and he, he does feel like he gets tunnel vision still when he does put the ball on the floor. But the fact that he, you know, he can take him, we've seen it during the playoffs too, like these side dribble uh, jumpers, like that's huge. But to have him just be plug and play there, someone who's going to give you like this season basically twenty points per game on on super above average three point shooting that's monstrous in large part because of what he does on the other end and Marcus Smart's going to be the guy who gets all defense honors um I feel like people talk about what Tatum does defensively more maybe because he breaks up uh it feels like more plays when he's allowed to do more off the ball but Jalen Brown really makes this defense hum it's because of uh, it's because of him at at least partially that they can play smaller at points since he will match up against bigger guys and he's he's a pretty good Presence on the glass the other thing is is that he's going to be the one that spends collectively the most time against the the top options like you're you're definitely going to have a marcus smart in that conversation and you know you can definitely make a case that he is uh, maybe their most versatile defender but when you look at this this is per uh krishna narsu of basketball index uh b-ball index excuse me Jalen Brown spent more time on both number one and number two options than any other player on the Celtics this season. And that's like when you have that type of defender, I don't know how, like, I don't even know how to necessarily quantify that, but he allows... he allows Boston to just do so many different things, and I'm I'm mispeaking again. He spent the second most amount of time on number one and number two options because it was Marcus Smart. I was double checking that because it didn't look right when I was looking at my notes there. So having someone who can do that while also going up against like the bigger guys, like those actual fours, where he's going to probably give up at at points, maybe some size, maybe definitely some some pounds. I don't have a problem with that contract at all. And I think what also helps is that Boston's in a different position where they're not necessarily even looking for him to be their number two. They have that with Tatum and Walker. They can let him settle into that number three, um, number four role on some nights if you're going to keep Gordon Hayward around. And the fact that they're paying him on purpose to be their number three, not that they're paying him to be their number two, and then he just ends up being, you know, in Evan Fournier or something like that on offense, I'm talking about. Uh, I think that gives him the luxury to give him that money. And look, just what he does on defense, it's just, I think it far and away exceeds perception of what he does on defense, uh, at least nationally. I'm sure Boston fans are well aware of how good he is there. Next question comes from, I apologize for mispronouncing this in advance, Inoshima Don Massey, What was the worst contract? Tobias Harris, Al Horford, Timothy Mazgov, or Eddie Curry? So Eddie Curry... Just as a refresher, signed a six-year, sixty million dollar deal with the Knicks in two thousand five. I think that was a, a sign and trade. That was when you go back to the salary cap, that like that that was a ton of money. And then the six years is scary. Timothy Mozgov signed four years, sixty four million in the summer of two thousand and sixteen. It was the Lakers that gave him that contract. Shout out Mitch, Mitch Kupchak, and uh and the and bus. God, why did I forget his his name already? I already forgot the bus brother's name. Um, but shout out to them for handing out that that contract. Then you have Tobias Harris who got five years, one eighty this summer. And then Al Horford got four years, 109, but only 97 of it is guaranteed. When you look at the balance of theirs, um, Mozgov's was technically expiring this year, but he didn't even spend, uh, he didn't play in the NBA this year. Um, Tobias Harris has like four years and 142.3 or something like that left on his deal. And then Al Horford is at three years and $81 million, 69 million guaranteed. This actually wasn't a hard question to answer for me. It's Timothy Mozgov, just because at least, look, the the Horford and Harris contracts, if you kept Jimmy Butler, I don't think the Harris contract looks as bad. And for Horford, like maybe he's worth this money or close to it, but for a different team. And Harris is 147.3, not 142.3 over the next four years. Um, And then with Curry, so he signs that deal just before his age 23 season like that's not ridiculous to do when he was coming off 16 points five boards a game um i think you always definitely he had his conditioning problems you knew that he wasn't going to be this great defender but it was at least a worthwhile gamble in the sense that he was young and he was gettable um and so why not give him that money like that contract finished before his his age 30 season that's not that doesn't make it a, it turned out to be a terrible deal but that doesn't make it a terrible investment mozkov just never showed any sort of volume on the offensive end and like he proved to be semi-valuable defensively you know you look at the the Cavs title in 2016 what he was able to do but just the direction that the league was headed even at that time like they were it was moving away from these more plotting lumbering bigs and so even if you weren't counting on him to give you anything offensively which you couldn't really you had to at least have like some Zemmets have thought that this wasn't even Bismack Biombo when you're looking at his mobility. like How much of an asset is he going to be to you defensively? And look, at that point, he was about to go into his age 30 season. like He wasn't even that young. So I think it's Timothy Mozgov by far and away. If I had to rank these, I'd probably go Mozgov was the worst. Curry would be the second worst of the bunch. I go back and forth on the Horford-Harris deals. When you look at the situation specifically, the, the Horford deal was probably more egregious, but Harris, four years and 147.3 million left, five and 180 for a guy who's probably best suited as your number three, provided your first two guys aren't essentially non-shooters or like, you know, when an Embiid and a Simmons, like you need to have another top tier wing or top tier shot creator next to him. I don't know. I'm going to still say, I want to say Harris and then I want to say Harris's was better than Horford's. So Mozgov was the worst of these four, then Eddie Curry, then Horford, then Harris. I mean, at least he's still like on the younger side. That's the other thing that people forget. And including myself, like I look at it too, is Tobias Harris has been on a zillion teams. It feels like he's been around forever. Uh, he just turned 28 this past July though. So this contract isn't going to take him like into his, his twilight years. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Wrapping up with, I think, the, the final two questions that we're getting into. What kind of mo- Oh, this comes from at Brain with an E at the end of that. What kind of money will Boogie Cousins sign for, and where would he go- be a good fit? Please say the Nuggets. I could see it. You have Millsap and Plumlee, are free agents this summer. Maybe if you resign Jeremy Grant, who's a player option as well, and you want him to soak up more backup five minutes, and you go with him and Bo Bull behind Nikola Jokic, um, that would be fine. But if you can get Boogie on the cheap, like having him take on half of Plumlee's minutes, and then you experiment more with Bo Bowl and maybe Millsap's back, who knows. But there's room for a big in Denver, is what I'd say, unless you're going to just all out go into Bo next year, which I would be kind of surprised if they did that. Uh, You know, Mason Plumlee, let's just assume he leaves like he's leaving 17 minutes a game behind. And so that's not going to be made up by more Jeremy Grant at the five minutes if they even go there and bowl bowl. Um, Even if you bring Millsap back, like there would still be you would think like they could float 15 minutes around because Millsap's minutes shouldn't even really be expanding since he's going to be going into, I believe, his age, 36 season. So Denver is a potential fit Um, after that. I could see Dallas if it's cheap enough because they don't have Dwight Powell and they do seem reticent to want to bill Christoph Porzingis as a five. He has his own injuries to deal with. Um, but even in the minutes when he's not on the court, like they might just need another center. I don't know how far Boban gets you. Will they bring Willie Cauley-Stein back? Um, he was one of the players who opted out of the, the bubble for them and he has a, a player option for $2.3 million. Well, if he picks it up, maybe that makes a big less important for them to get. Um some people float around the fact that he would return to Golden State. I don't really see that happening. Maybe if Houston wanted to have one big on the roster, they were actually going to play depending on who they hire as a head coach. That's a possibility. I thought about maybe the Los Angeles Clippers just because um a lot of people think Noah might end up in Chicago now as sort of a mentor um for the Billy Donovan hire. Which quick comment on that? 4 years, 24 million dollar deal. I think a lot of people were puzzled when they looked at him leaving Oklahoma City for Chicago and they thought he wanted to be in a more win-now situation. My guess would be a lot of it has to do with the guaranteed years where there's a two-year extension on the table for the Thunder he gets a four-year deal from the Bulls, and he might just like their roster a little bit better because the Thunder's future is, like, theoretical because Dennis Schroeder, Stephen Adams come off the books next year. Gallonard might leave in free agency this year. They're probably going to trade Chris Paul. So you have Shea Gildas-Alexander. You have Lou Dort, of course. Can't forget about him and Darius Baisley. But then you're just dealing with all these picks. And so at least you're you're trafficking in more known quantities with Chicago. Uh, maybe they're not the best, but if you really like Kobe White and then Zach Levine is a good tough shot maker, um, probably better off if he can be the number two, if not number three. Wendell Carter Jr. has to intrigue uh, Billy Donovan as sort of this baby Al Horford type player. Uh, do you, people like Larry and like he can still, look, he's, he's a good stretch four. I just don't know that what we've seen him add any more depth to his offensive bag. Part of that's on Jim Boylan for, you know, last season it was throwing him too many grenades late in the shot clock and in the post. And then this year he just didn't feel all that involved. So I do see the reasoning for Billy Donovan going from Oklahoma City to Chicago, nice little tangent there. But with the Clippers like, you know, Patrick Patterson's probably gone, what if J. Michael Green leaves in free agency? He's a player option. They have a um a Zubats, but Montrezl Harrell would be like kind of the name I'm looking at here is like what if he leaves in free agency because he definitely costs himself money with his performance in the bubble. There aren't a ton of teams with cap space um but maybe a Charlotte just comes calling and it doesn't take that much to get him out of Los Angeles because the Clippers realize well we're, we we want to pay Marcus Morris and he's just going to give us more positional flexibility and maybe they have to think about even giving your Michael Green a little bit of raise should he opt out so just Trez become collateral damage of that and maybe you know Boogie makes some sense there Miami would be kind of interesting like if you're talking about needing to rehab his career would he be able to you know get through the High conditioning threshold that they set after so many injuries. Uh, but having him back up, bam, um, I don't know if they necessarily need those type of minutes. But Myers Leonard's a free agent this year, and who knows how much they actually wanted to play if they bring him back next year. Yodonis Haslam doesn't play and is probably going to retire. Kelly Olinick could opt out, um, probably won't decline his player option, but also, you know, Kelly Olinick minutes are roller coastery uh, t- or touch and go somewhere along those lines. Um, other teams that could use him, just thinking like really quickly, it gets kind of tough. Like I think I would probably end that there. Um, there's if if Portland is looking for a backup big, but you have Zach Collins and Yusuf Nurkic there. Even if it's on Whiteside leaves, um, would the Toronto Raptors be interested if you know they lose Mark Gasol and, and Serge Ibaka and who knows what happens with Chris Boucher? Um, they still have Pascal Siakam at the five arrangements that I think they should explore more frequently, but they could end up getting a big. And then there's of course Washington, where just he has the ties to to John Wall, and uh, they have Mo Wagner, they have Thomas Bryant, but like that's not enough. You shouldn't be playing Davis Bertans at center if you're hoping to get any stops. Not that DeMarcus Cousins will be uh, much better; he'll, he'll still be much better, but he's just he's never been this great defender. And now when you're looking at you know uh, the Achilles, the ACL injury, like that's just going to be tough to come back from. As far as his cost. I would be shocked if he gets even the taxpayers mid level at this point, which would be a hair over five million. Uh I would think more along the lines of the biannual exception would make sense for him. Maybe he even ends somewhere if he wants to just play for a, a concrete winner, uh, yeah, like a Clippers team, uh, and his promised minutes there that he would sign for the veterans minimum, trying to reboot his value. But if, if he gets uh I'll be sh- I'll be shocked if he gets more than the taxpayers mid level exception. And so that basically puts him within range of, of everybody in the league if he does fall into um into that price point um i believe uh, we have one more question left this one comes from adam polio how does pipm work player impact plus minus hero scored lots of points in game form assuming and the eye test says he's playing well but the box metrics box metrics mark him as a negative point for player which is good for a rookie but not for a player is there a paper describing its method NBA math, uh, Adam Bromwell, me, we have nothing to do with player impact plus minus, so I don't want to riff on it for them. Jacob Goldstein would be the person to ask about this. Um, what I'll do is, though, like, let's look at game uh, four against Boston specifically where Hero just absolutely like goes off. He has 37 points on 14 of 21 shooting, also added in three assists, and yet he was a minus four. So people that are citing this, if they are citing it, like minus four in a three point game is not that big of a deal. Like if it was minus 12 in a three point game or something like that's when you start to get like the red alarm fire. And so what i kind of do is I like to then poke around the lineups that he was in, um, to see like maybe where those struggles came from. And so you look at that with Tyler hero in game four, um, he spent the most amount of time playing with Bam Adebayo and then Andre Iguodala, and he was a minus four during his minutes with Andre Iguodala. But the thing that stands out to me is in 19 minutes with Jay Crowder on the court uh, and Tyler Hero, the were a minus 13. So uh, you start to poke around those lineups and see well, like who who were they kind of playing with? And uh, they spent some time with the, the you know the one that stands out to me here is the Iguodala Tyler Hero Jay Crowder combination was a minus nine in 10 minutes. And then Adebayo, Adebayo, Hero, and Crowder was a minus 8 in 12 minutes. And then the Butler, Crowder, Hero trio, a minus 8 in 15 minutes. So some of these trios are being combined together. And if you look at Hero's most used lineup in Game 4, it's Iggy, Dragic, Butler, Adebayo, and then Hero himself. They were a plus 3 in 12 minutes. His second most used lineup was a minus 4 in just 6 minutes. That had Robinson, Iggy, Butler, Crowder, and Hero himself in there as well. What I'm basically getting at is I think you need to dig deeper into the lineups, especially when you're working with a smaller sample size in the playoffs. And particularly when you're working with a rookie, um, those lineups are, are going to matter. And so when you're looking at the context of Miami's lineups specifically, you probably need to go back and watch and say, well, who are these lineups going against? When you just look at the players that were on the court with him, like they're going up against Boston's um, starters. And so when you know, the Celtics had a cook in, in game four specifically, like that would just be a bad time to go on the floor and uh so you can have those sort of finite stretches uh, even if you win where you get torched and that could totally upend a player's plus minus like it's so dependent on who they they play around um to what extent player impact plus minus uh is affected by that i honestly just i honestly don't know those catch-all metrics usually try to take into account um personnel that's around them but I I think you have to look at the context of the game more specifically, and I always just go back to the lineups. Who were they on the court with? What were the results? And some of their most used combinations, or in this case, were there sort of these more sparingly used ones where they were just absolutely torched for some reason? That's going to do it for me, though. Let's you know, as always, please before we get into this Bucks interview, as always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us uh, wherever you're getting your podcast. Download every episode, and whether or not you're on iTunes, just once more, want to throw it out there, please. Um, throw us a rating, five stars only, write a review. It helps us out a ton. We appreciate every single one of you. But now let's talk some Milwaukee Bucks with the Eurosteps, Ty Windish. Ty, welcome to your first appearance on the Hardwood Knox podcast. It's been, it's taken me too long to ask you to come on. So I thank you for gracing me with your presence and in advance, your your insight on the Milwaukee Bucks. How are you
2: doing tonight? I'm great. You know what? I think the wait, and you know, every day I've woken up thinking, is this the day I'm going <laughs> to get the Hardwood Knox invite? Is today the day, Hector? The wait made it all the sweeter. I'm on cloud nine right now. I'm doing great. I'm somehow happy to talk bucks, even in the year of our Lord 2020, the the latter part of it, at least. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well, though. I'm ready to go. Thank you so much for having me. Well, please, thank you for coming on. I can confirm that you're the first person
1: that would ever be excited to come on this podcast. So (laughs) you are doing me the favor and look, let's get right into the Bucks here. So I don't want to like rehash what just happened um, too much with them, but given the way the playoffs ended, like what is just your general impression of this team or maybe how it ended or you even, you know, maybe more surprised that I know there was some stuff trying to be drummed up in the media, but it doesn't seem like internally there was this red alarm fallout necessarily aside from um, Giannis meeting with, you know, the, the upper brass, which isn't really, I would expect that to happen anyway. Um, Mike Budenholzer is still there. The reports are that he's safe. Are you at all surprised there wasn't more of a reaction or is this kind of just what you expected? And maybe you're, you are just a little bit numb to to how the season ended because it seems like you looking at people who cover the Bucks specifically sort of saw it coming at, at least at the beginning of the second round, if not earlier.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say I think I am still very underwhelmed by the Bucks' response to this. And both, like from what I've read and, and like what's been out there in the Athletic and ESPN and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and all the other great work, what I've heard too, and in, in some conversations, you know, with some folks regarding the Bucks and and how their front office and their brain trust is looking at this, mm-hmm. I think. I think the team is putting a lot of stock in like bubble weirdness and in the fact that there were so many things off and I know specifically like not having home court is something they look at a big a big way like I think Aaron Rodgers tweeted this and he is technically a Bucks minority owner so this mm-hmm. technically is Bucks ownership although that's not not this is not all I'm referring to is his tweet but he said there's no way they're losing you know in 5 if they play these games in 5 serve and look are they inherently wrong about the weirdness probably not being good for them? No, I don't think they're wrong. I, I actually did think the break was going to help the Bucks, who were beat up and, and sputtering heading into it. Clearly it didn't, but I don't think it's, I think it's just too easy and too convenient to hand wave it and go, no, Bud is fine and the roster is largely fine. Although it looks like they're not saying that and I know we'll get into that later. Um, but I do think there's a bit too much hand waving and just saying like, you know, oh, it's the bubble because like other teams are performing in the bubble, like right. Denver and, and LA and Boston and obviously Miami, you know, they were able to come and execute and, you know, the Bucks are old, but some of these other rosters are old too. With the level of talent the Bucks have, they certainly should not have gone, uh, what did they go, five and five in the bubble? Like they, and they obviously lost in the second round. I I, I think it's like the more I talk about it and think about it, like I'm starting to get Quietly upset over here. (laughs) It just—it shouldn't be acceptable. Like I think there should be some very broad changes, and we might get them still. But I do think that there's a little bit too much calmness. Although it sounds like Giannis is is working with the Bucks going forward, so maybe they're not being too too calm. But still, I would be a little bit more reactive and and react a little more strongly to this if it was up to me. Because I just think what happened, and I know we don't want to rehash it entirely, but from a Bucks person, I'll put it plainly, it was embarrassing and it was a failure. And it's the kind of thing that you thought they didn't have a chance to do this and, and maybe keep you honest. Now it seems like maybe they do. You certainly can't do it twice. So you really – you cannot afford another flame out like this in the postseason. No, you can't. And I am I hate criticizing coaches probably unless their name
1: was Jim Boylan um, <laughs> because like they're just – every coach is just so much smarter than me and can think and see the game in ways that I can only dream – of thinking and seeing it. But some of what was happening in the playoff series just seemed like too obvious. Like I try not to, unless I'm making a joke, like I try not to really buy into just like the, you know, the Twitter herd talk, whatever you want to call it. But it did seem simple at the beginning, you know, before Giannis's ankle injury, you know, play Middleton and Giannis more and don't ever let there be a second, a second where both of them are on the bench most certainly. And stuff like that just feels like these more basic failures because those are things that were easily controllable you know look if Giannis gets injured regardless like that gives you a built-in excuse but because it seems like there were so many things you didn't do before that you're kind of suffering the fallout from that but the other thing I would add is I don't know that I don't know if you would be a proponent of you know getting rid of him I just don't know where the necessarily the upgrade is uh, maybe you could point to anyone who would say, well, any coach that's willing to just make, you know, shape shift more, if you want to call it that in the playoffs might be an upgrade, but I don't know that you go out there and any of the free agent coaches, whether it's, you know, a trendy assistant name, a first time head coach, or one of the big wigs like a a Tyloo or Mike D'Antoni necessarily get you that much further. It seems like this might be more of a, the way the roster is is built type of thing than necessarily the coaching, even though, again, I do think in parts of this playoffs, the coaching was definitely a huge problem.
2: Yeah, I I don't disagree. I do think, and this is something that was pointed out to me, because I I am still, I don't think, I'm at the point where I really don't think it's going to happen unless Giannis kind of, in his own way, suggests it, which I I can't honestly see him doing. I mean, this is something people bring up all the time when there's kid rumors, and, and this will be brought up against Bucks fans who rightfully go, that guy is a terrible head coach. They go, oh, well, Giannis loved him. Giannis didn't want him to be fired. Giannis also loved Larry Drew. Giannis also currently loves Mike Budenholzer. Giannis loved uh, Michael Carter-Williams. The list of people Giannis loves on the Bucks is pretty much the whole team. I mean, it's, the guy gets along with people. He's extremely loyal. That's just who he is. So I, I'm worried we're probably stuck with at least one more year. of But I don't think he's a bad coach. I certainly don't think he's stupid. I, I do think <laughs> – He's so – and the, trust me, there are people who are. the. the I don't know if you remember hashtag firekid on Buck's Twitter, but it was like everyone had the same avi and it spread and yes. every reply to everybody. Yeah, so it's, it's – it's fire butt is a thing now. The, the avies are out there. They've been commissioned. They, they exist. They're in the wild. I think they're going to grow. Um, but I just think there's like, – like you said, the rigidness, the, the lack of fluidity. There's such – he has such a firm belief. In his system and and how well it works and you know playing everybody on the freaking roster who's active every night and not overtaxing Giannis and not you know just running a bunch of play calls but going with this motion offense and everything else and the issue is you know he was the coach's poll coach of the year and a I think runner-up to the actual coach of the year award and the Bucks led the regular season and wins again and all of these things are regular season accolades because that's where those things pay off the most. And you saw mm-hmm. it with the Hawks, and now you see it with the Bucks, And we know what happens every year when Mike Budenholzer goes up against a team slightly less talented or equally talented or more talented with a coach who is willing to adapt and, and play, coach in the playoffs the way you know most coaches do – it doesn't go well for the Bucks. The series starts off, and maybe there's a couple punches thrown either way. The Miami series, we didn't even get that, um, and then the, the other team adjusts, and Bud really doesn't. And then you know you give up four straight wins, I and mean, it's it's rough, and that's just how it's gone. Um, so I do think they need a replacement. I think Ty Lue would be great. I think some of the promising assistants would be good. I know some people in on, on Bucksland have pointed out like. Nick Nurse was a first-time head coach. Steve Kerr was a first-time head coach, although he had been in a front office. And those are maybe pie in the sky. But I do see the the vision and the idea of, like, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out how to use this roster. And it's just not being used right well in the postseason. And I, I just want to touch on one more thing. I'm talking a ton. I'm sorry. No, I love it. Keep going. So there's like there's a little blowback on the Giannis. Not I don't want to even say blowback, but Bucks people will tell you, and and they're not wrong. They're they're correct. I agree. Giannis does get like really tired. And I think part of it might be because you know he plays 29 minutes a game in the regular season and still puts up all these stats. But whatever, there, there's maybe it's they they if they ramped his minutes up earlier, he would be able to play 40 plus in the playoffs. Right now he can't. Fine. Even so, Chris Middleton can. Chris Middleton's always been able to. So like Chris not playing. 42 to 44 minutes a night is is just foolishness. It's just mm-hmm. foolishness. And then obviously it's very easy to, as you mentioned, stagger their minutes. If Chris plays almost the whole game, just make sure Giannis plays the other six minutes and you're covered. <laughs> right. So like this is not that and, I, and again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm smarter than Mike Budenholzer. I am not. But this is not that complicated. Like his his commitment to doing bud stuff is just too great and it's not conducive to winning. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, I don't know. Shame on Bud. Like, I don't know. I just I, my both of my hands are on my head now. This is where we're at in, in covering this. But yeah, I I do think they should have gone for another coach. But I also think they have roster issues as well. I don't think it's a magic fix all, which I think is what I was gonna say when I started this, but I got sidetracked by Bud stuff, which happens. The one thing I'll say here,
1: and I do think the Bucks are part of this. The Clippers might be the the other evidence for me right now is I'm just prepared more than ever to buy into postseason results compared to regular season like more so than I ever would and not to the point where it's like well the Clippers need to trade Paul George now but where that team clearly needs like an infusion of playmaking an infusion of locker room um, stability if it's not going to be Kawhi's voice like I don't know if a Pat Bev Lou Williams slash Trez who those guys are going to want to go 82 and 0 um, and they'll, you know, they'll be that loudly, which is great. I don't know if that's the right fit for those teams. And it, I think you could say the same with the Bucks now. And it, it probably helps that now we have post-seasons is worth of evidence for it. But I, that's just where I'm at, where I'm more so prepared, even post-bubble. I know that these are just unprecedented circumstances. And I know that they dealt with the Giannis injury. But just looking at what's happened between this playoffs and last playoffs, yes, it's such a small sample size compared to their regular season dominance. But there's clearly a difference. and it. It transparently matters now, and it feels like this roster, you know, you don't get rid of Giannis, you don't get rid of Chris Middleton, but it almost feels like anything other than that should be on the
2: table. This is going to sound wild to anyone who's, who may have followed me on Twitter or wherever for any amount of time, because I deeply, deeply love the man's game. If the right offer is out there, I am not close to trading Chris Middleton at this point. Oh, no, we're if- going to have words. <laughs> I, we might have to I just I love Chris I really do and I, I think I think it's most likely that they don't just because I don't think there's going to be an upgrade out there that is like enough of an upgrade to make it worthwhile but if somehow some way there was like a truly elite player and espe- like, especially a truly elite offense initiator out there I think you kind of have to do it like like I said this is like this. they should be in a controlled panic mode like the the circumstances that have gotten them here are unacceptable. I don't think it should be tenable to most mostly run it back. So, and it hurts me to say I would much rather keep him. And we're talking like players who I don't think will be available like if Brad Beal for whatever reason is available but the asking price is Chris Middleton, I think I'd go for it at this point. Ooh. And again, it pains me to say that and I don't think Brad Beal is available anyway. But just like a player who can initiate offense and be that perfect pick-and-roll partner with a better handle than Chris, which is really his one shortcoming at this point, I would go for it just because I feel like you you need to be in that let's-just-try-something-else-that-might-work mode.
1: I guess if you could tell me Bradley Beal was going to defend like he did three or four years ago, maybe I would do that. I'm just super bullish on Chris Milton. I had him as a top 10 guy this past regular season that obviously doesn't happen in a, in a normal year where Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, even Paul George and Joel Embiid just, just play more. And um, I, all the points you just make are fair, but I almost feel like that if there's an issue with him being the number two, part of it at least stems from the fact of how Giannis... Can be limited in the playoffs. And maybe it also relates the other way where well Giannis can be limited because Chris Middleton is his number two. But when Giannis doesn't even yet have enough counters, even though it seems like he's or it doesn't seem he's clearly just looking at the numbers and the volume, he's more comfortable dribbling into threes just when he brings the ball up the court or he has those, you know, he'll pull up for mid-range or, or he'll hit these, he'll shoot these, excuse me, these turnarounds, but there clearly aren't mm-hmm. enough efficient counters um for him against defenses to where he's made life easier on the rest of his teams in a way that you would necessarily expect. And so it definitely works both ways, but I feel like there does seem to be a little bit of a disconnect the, uh, uh, in how Chris Middleton is viewed in that number two discussion, because if you want, you know, Stephen Curry to be Giannis Attentacupo number two. You want Giannis to have a number one as his number two. Like that's just where I kind of land with it.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's totally fair. I think honestly, I think their limitations really hurt each other in painful ways. Like, I think if Giannis does have, and like, I'll throw Kawhi out there as an example. I mean, he's never going to have Kawhi jumper, but if he had some sort of semblance of true three level scoring, like, you know, 30% worse from anywhere but the rim, but as good as he is now at the rim, then it probably doesn't matter that much. If Chris Middleton does not have that elite handle, yeah. then it's like, okay, fine. It doesn't matter. Like, he's just going to be playing off ball. He's going to be in that. I mean, I guess I shouldn't use this comp to it did it, failed so badly but in that Paul George sort of role like he's like catching the ball against a compromised defense and he can go to work and it's easy for him and he gets a lot of spot up shots I I think yeah he'd be just fine but I think the fact that Giannis can't do those things or at least like was not comfortable and not able to do those things in the playoffs mean that his role becomes so much harder I mean you really you need to find smart ways to post him up which the Bucs aren't good at you need to run him as the role man and pick and roll which the Bucs don't do enough of and um, I have a take on this, but I'm I'm gonna hold on to it for now. Um, or you need to like just have him charge at five defenders, which is like the thing he does way way too often, and it makes my head hurt. And it works sometimes because he's Giannis, but it doesn't work a lot because it's five guys. Right. And I just think like that's the part where like you can maximize Giannis even as is, even without you know some hopeful of his own game adaptations that he will make to, to break down this wall, which it was disappointing and, and a failure on his part that he wasn't more ready to do this. He, he doesn't skate through all criticism of that. I mean, he knew what defenses were going to do until the very early part of the last game. He was not able to to sort of counter that. So that, that's a disappointment for him, too. He does not escape without blame. Um, but but like Chris is not a great pick-and-roll ball handler. He's good the pick and roll with Chris and Giannis works well and the Bucks should use more of it, but he is not like a Kyrie or Beal or staff or whoever mm-hmm. with the ball. Like he's not going to just like completely break down a defender or like dribble through a lot of traps. He can pull up from anywhere. He has that in his game, but he just can't get all over the court comfortably. And if he were able to do that, then Giannis off ball becomes a whole nother set of problems. So I do think their limitations play into each other, which is why, what, like, if, like if a real elite ball handler is available, it's not that I think they're that much better than Chris. It's that I think they might be a better fit to sort of mesh with Giannis a little bit better. I think I can buy it to that. My my biggest problem with him has long been like his game feels
1: like it stalls out before the rim. But if you're going to factor in mm-hmm. the ball handling as well, then that's not really something that I gave as much consideration to. This is the question. I'm not sure if you're tired of answering it yet. You said you weren't when we first <laughs> talked about this podcast. But let's start with the short part of it. Giannis is supermax. Do you think he's signing it before next season, yes or no?
2: I actually do now. Okay. I actually do. And I don't think it means... And A I lot of people in Bristol place, are really upset with this answer right now. I'm just throwing that out there to you. I, I totally get that. <laughs> I, I don't feel for them at all, but I totally get that. Um, I think he does at this point just because I think – we like clearly he's not all the way out, right? Like he already met with the Bucks, and I think if there was bad news at that visit, I think we'd have some sort of an idea of it by now, and he plans to meet with them again after his vacation, which who knows, maybe he changes his mind and he's gone. Um, but it doesn't seem to me like he's out. It seems to me like, and this is his public quotes and the reporting on this meeting from like a thousand different sources, that he wants to work with the Bucs to improve and, and he wants to get better. He wants to win in Milwaukee at least for one more year. Why I think he resigns, I don't think he wants those folks in Bristol to have this content every single game, every single media availability he everyone knows everyone involved knows there's going to be so many questions where are you going why haven't you resigned? Blah 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 it'll be endless Giannis hates that stuff man Giannis is a quiet dude Giannis's camp is silent all the time I remember one time Giannis was on TMZ and he looked so bothered about the guy following him and asking him questions mm-hmm. and it was like Buck's Twitter had a field day we were like we're never gonna lose him no one no one does that to him here people just like quietly gawk at him when he's in restaurants because that's how midwesterners do business um, <laughs> so i do think that it would make sense then on that front and obviously the bucks have obvious reason to want to get this done but Giannis can get all that goes away you know he literally can't be traded for a year it seems like he's committed for the long haul The bucks they become less interesting which kind of works for Giannis. however i don't think he's going to say You know, I for sure am going to be a buck for the next six years just based on how poorly they did in this postseason, how few assets they have going forward. So my idea, and I wrote about this today, what if there's just kind of a quiet understanding between both sides? Like I'm going to sign it now. I'm going to get my money locked up. We're going to be in a long-term deal. But in one year, two years, if we're not going where I think we should be going, if I'm not happy, if we're not winning, and that's his number one thing. He wants to win more than all else. Then like even with four or five years left on my deal, which this never happens, but even with all those years left, you're going to trade me. Like just trade me if I want out. We'll we'll work together. We'll find the right place. Like let me get out early. So I think it would be like a little shady and I, I mean like – I don't know if this is like legal under the CBA but newsflash to anyone listening – teams and players don't listen to the CBA on almost almost all accounts. Um, no, what you just mentioned
1: is probably one of the least shady things that could possibly happen in this scenario.
2: Yeah, I mean, we haven't even got into, like, if he's going to have, like, shares of X company or whatever. <laughs> like, I think Dirk worked for the Mavericks when he was a player with the Mavericks. Like, stuff happens. Stuff happens, folks. Stay woke. Um, but, yeah, but I could absolutely see that being the case, where there's sort of a mutual understanding that, Like we're not going to hardball you and and not trade you if you ask out after a year, like between seasons, which I think is how he would handle it. Um, And the no trade part would expire by the point where he said he wanted to stay through his current contract anyway. So I just think that sort of like nod, nod, wink, wink, let's get the media off our backs. Let's look more attractive to players we want to recruit and get to play here because, you know, maybe a Brad Beal. And I don't want to keep using that name. I don't want to make it seem like I think that's possible. But that's just like the example. I think that player is a lot more likely to come to Milwaukee if Giannis is under contract for six years as opposed to one. And there's constant questions about if he's leaving. So I think he signs it very long winded way to say, I think he signs it, but I don't know if that means he's actually going to be a buck until like 2026. That would not surprise me if that's a scenario. And we've talked about it on this
1: podcast, he has leverage no matter how many years he has left on his deal. Uh, We just saw Paul George get out of Oklahoma City when he had two guaranteed years. Could have been three if he picked up that player option. Stars are going to have leverage in that way. You don't want a disgruntled star on your team. And if he's under contract for long term, you can maximize your value there. So if he comes to you, look, if Colin T. Towns went to the Minnesota Timberwolves tomorrow and said he wants out, maybe it's a little bit different because he's on just his second contract. But like Giannis is going to be on his third. And so there's just a different level of clout that you have. And also the team just knowing like, well, there's only so many different avenues that we can explore. At this point, And so he doesn't lose that leverage by re-signing. The thing that I said he should do, and it's been pointed out to me, um, what you just mentioned, he doesn't really like the speculation, so he wouldn't prefer this. But if I were Giannis, I would not sign the Supermax, even if I was intending to go back to Milwaukee, because then it really just screws with two of your biggest Eastern Conference competitors in Toronto and Miami who presumably are going to remain a little bit in lurch for the next year while they're waiting for Giannis's free agency and so you weaken them a little bit while still keeping some pressure on the franchise the other argument i made is like you have a bigger hold on what the salary cap is going to be long term so maybe you decide to sign a shorter term deal because you know there's going to be like another huge cap spike and you can get more money uh, that way and then also it still keeps pressure on on the franchise People pointed out that then you open yourselves up to what if he gets injured, yada, yada, yada. Giannis could suffer the most devastating injury that you can name, and he's going to get the max from Milwaukee next summer if he waits, or ne- whatever next offseason happens. I shouldn't say next summer. So yeah, I was a proponent of that, but as you pointed out, and as others have too, he doesn't like the speculation, and so if you go without the contract, you have that speculation. So my one question would be, wouldn't that be kind of hysterical, though, if that's the approach that any player ever took? Like, let me kind of screw with these teams that think they have a shot with me. But what I, my real question is, let's say he doesn't sign it, you're still not trading him. Like You're you're obligated to play next season out, right? Unless he requests for out, which as you kind of alluded to with the he's not going to ask for a new head coach, he seems like maybe the least likely player in the NBA to request a trade.
2: Yeah, and he's the one thing he's really went to say, besides supporting his teammates and all that, the one thing you said is like some people see a wall and go around it. I want to go through the wall, which is an offensive foul, but carry on unfortunate analogy based (laughs) on the way he played in the semis um but yeah i I don't think he asks out and i definitely don't think like unless he firmly says like i'm leaving and i don't even really want to play this year in milwaukee like i think even if like he's leaning leaving but he's still and i think Giannis, i i I just think he's gonna go 100 all the time i don't think you can ever trade him unless he makes you trade him i don't think there's any Like, there's no package to me that's worth it. No realistic one. I mean, you're not going to get, like, LeBron, Kawhi, KD, and Steph in a crazy 16 team deal. You know, you're going to get, like, some fun young guys, some salary filler, and some picks. And it's like, okay. You know, you look at, like, a, like, let's look at a team that did really well, in quotes. Like, the the Pelicans, right? Everyone says the Pelicans did so, so well. They got Jackson Hayes, um, Naw Gnaw. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to. I always feel like I'm going to get one part of his name wrong. So Nikhil Alexander wrong. Walker, who is every
1: draft, I, as someone who's not a draft expert, I zero in on like one or two players, and he was one of two last uh, draft. So I apologize to his career trajectory in advance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, that was the first one. So, Nikhil Alexander Walker got it. For me, this draft, it's my one is uh, Maxi. I'm, I'm all in on Maxi. But I might anyway. be. I thought it was going to be Sadiq Bay, but
1: I'm pretty sure it's going to be Patrick Williams. So, I apologize Ooh, to Patrick like Williams' his. career in advance as well.
2: Yeah, I was a big Denzel Valentine guy. So, I think I have the same affliction. You <laughs> um, but they got so they get Nah, they get Jackson Hayes, they get a guy who I think they're hoping comes from Australia next year. And I think, like, two more picks and a pick swap or two. You know, does that package give you a better chance to win a title than Giannis Antetokounmpo for one year? I don't think so. Nope. I don't think eight years of Jackson Hayes, no, seven years of some guy in Australia, and, you know, four moderately good to pretty bad picks is going to get you closer to a title than a two-time reigning MVP, uh, also a reigning MVP slash DPOI. And I think your goal in the NBA should be to win a championship. I think if you're close, you just have to go for it. So I think, no, there's no realistic package out there that can justify moving a guy like Giannis, again, unless he absolutely says, trade me, in which case, yes, you begrudgingly take all the picks and bad, flawed young players and whatever else comes your way.
1: That would be the shock, though, to me. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if he signs the Supermax. It wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't. It would surprise me if he doesn't and then requests a trade. Like That would be the outcome that really surprises me.
2: Yeah, same here. I, I I don't think it would make much sense at all. It would be such a, a sudden heel turn from him. And I think it would probably be like the one outcome that could make people immediately dislike him. Yeah, I don't even know if they would. I think p- some people would probably get it. I mean, this this Semi's loss was pretty damn awful. But after saying, I think, that he was so dedicated and everything, if he would then turned around and came back from vacation and got traded like a month or two after that very firm quote, I think it would be kind of a bad look. I guess it also depends where it goes, but right, um, yeah, I, I don't see it either. I'd be pretty surprised. I think, I think he's either leaving in 2021 or I don't know, I guess like I met, like I laid out earlier, maybe any year after that, and we just won't know. I think the crux is on the Bucks to remain good. That's what matters. And mm-hmm. I think it's good. I'm glad, I'm glad that pressure is on them. I, I think some front offices maybe need a little bit of a kick in the pants to not get complacent. And Giannis has certainly done that. Um, yeah, and look, you live with that if he leaves in 2021. I think if you ask the
1: Thunder when it happened with KD in 2016, you ask the Cavs both time, both times, like when they played it out with LeBron, like you live with it because Giannis is on that level of player. There are other players that you don't do it with. I think like, you know, Paul George might be a good cutoff if you know, he like the Pacers, if you know he's going to leave or think he's going to leave, you know, you get rid of him. Um, but if it's a Kawhi, um, unless he asked her out like he did in San Antonio, and then look, Giannis, KD, LeBron, like those ilk of players – now, I want to move on here first, and it's going to seem like a random pivot, but it sets up what we're going to talk about, which you know, but I'm just giving the preface to our listeners. Dante DiVincenzo. I know. Giannis's free agency to, to Dante DiVincenzo. What a segue. He's there, when you look at their roster, he's like their one potential swing piece um, or high-end trade chip, perhaps, unless you're looking at one of their future firsts, if they put it unprotected and in and in play. I'm wondering when I we were doing six man of the year ballots, I had him third. I would have probably had him higher if he, you know, played a little bit more. But he just did so much for the Bucs. Like his hands are everywhere on defense. He ran point guard a little bit for them. He's not really that great of a shooter, but he can move off the ball okay. So I really liked him. But then the bubble comes around and just to feel like his offense wasn't there. Have your impressions of him changed at all? Or what is your impression of him? What do you see his ceiling as? We kind of had a, you know, uh, A behind-the-scenes discussion about this when I was doing a a fantasy league exercise for Bleacher Report's app about how some Bucks fans consider him an all-star, which as someone who is high on Double D, I did not anticipate at all. Um, But I'm just curious what you view him as, particularly after what happened in the bubble in the playoffs.
2: So he actually ended the playoffs fairly well. He was one of their best few players in about the last two games of the year. And I think that I, th- I think what he, I think what happened why like he I mean I said I said they shouldn't even play him once the playoffs he was that bad in the the seeding games I can't wait till that's a term we never have to use again for the rest of our lives um, <laughs> but he was so bad in those seeding games that I was like don't even put him in the rotation of course he played anyway because bud and that that's the one bud thing that worked out he he got it together by the end of the run but. I think he hit a delayed rookie wall. And I know he's in his second year, but an injury pretty much took him out of his first year and he never played as much as he got to play this season. And I think the break plus that really caught up to him. But I'm glad that he kept his sort of, his intensity, which is I think one of the best parts of his game. He really does. He really plays like he is an all-star, which I think is why people say that. Like He takes some truly audacious shots and a lot of them (laughs) miss because he is not that. But I don't mind that he takes him most of the time. Um, but I'm I'm decently high on him. I would prefer not to move him. I don't like anyone else on the roster except Giannis. I don't look at him as untradeable. I would prefer not to because, like you said, I mean, he is the young core. I think like the next youngest player beside him who actually plays is probably Giannis. The Bucks do not have a lot of draft. They they blew a lot of draft picks, man. Um, pretty brutal <laughs> if you look at their like literally outside of Giannis from 2013 onward. There is not much there except, of course, Malcolm Brogdon, who I'm contractually obligated to never talk about as a member of Bucks Twitter. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> um, as bad. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I think Dante is good. Um, I think he's pretty good. I think it's one of those where as much as you feel like you have to go all in if you're the Bucks on this next year to impress Giannis, which is also I think how they felt about this year, you also, would hope, anyway. <laughs> you would, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but you would, you would hope so. Um, maybe that's how I felt. Maybe that's not how the Bucks felt. Um, you also have to think about like three years from now, because like again, if you're terrible around Giannis in 2023, you're probably not going to keep him that much longer. Like that's not what he's trying to do. I mean, he wants to be when all is said and done. He wants to be seen as one of the greats. I mean, he idolized Kobe Bryant. He met with Kobe. <laughs> he brought a notebook to literally take notes from Kobe Bryant and Giannis is not a guy who works out with a lot of people but he had that much respect for Kobe and, and I think like if LeBron had recently retired I think it'd be the same I think he just has respect for, for greatness like that Um and I think he wants to be up there in that pantheon and he knows you know these regular season stuff is great he knows what you need to do to be looked at as one of those all-time greats you got to win championships right and he, the Bucks can't fail to do that around him so that's why the Dante thing is tough because as much as like, what if he's the the breaking point in trying to outbid Philly for Chris Paul, who I guess the Bucks might not be interested in, but whatever. Like, do you include him to get that much better next year, but maybe you lose one of your few guys who's still on a rookie contract and seems promising. So I would prefer to keep him. I don't think it's a must, but I, I think he's good, and I think he adds a nice little bit of, like, aggressiveness to them that they really need. So I, I would be all for it if they found a way to keep him, as long as they don't keep, like, everybody else, too. Yeah, I mean, to
1: me, it's just tough to. Chris Paul is a different, and I'm obviously going to ask you about that. He's like a different case just because he makes so much money that, you know, part of the asset is still as good as he is, being willing to take on his contract. But like, if you're going for an actual, like, if you're getting Drew Holiday, uh, I don't know, we're trying to get him. I, I don't know how you even start without including DiVincenzo. And I've long been a proponent of distant first round picks can be really valuable to a franchise. I've talked about, you know, the Pelicans having the Lakers. 2024 first round pick with the ability to defer it till 2025, like that could be, you don't know where LeBron's going to be at in his career. And yes, she's still have Anthony Davis, but who's around him. Like that could be a really valuable first round pick. However, GMs can't necessarily think that far down the line, not only because of how often the NBA landscape changes, but because of their lack of job security in general. Yeah. And so, you know, yep. taking on a, a pick in 2024, 2026, that's not necessarily the, the smartest move for, for your career. And so in the Bucks's case, then that leaves, uh, DiVincenzo. So I would, if you're getting a real player, like I think you have to give him up unless, you know, you're also giving up a, you know, you talked about a Chris Middleton. So maybe there are ways around that. But if you're trying to keep Giannis and and Chris, I don't really see how you get a player, like a high impact player without giving up Dante Di Vincenzo in this case. And like, I feel like your best hope is to actually sell him to another team as this high upside
2: prospect play. Yeah, I think you have to. You have to kind of hope they don't look too close to the fact that he's 23 already. Um, But yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think that's why that was the appeal of a CP3 was that he seems gettable without with keeping the powder dry on both Dante and Chris. And I don't think many players that good, probably any other players that good are going to be obtainable without losing one or both of those guys. So I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. If if you can get Drew Holiday and not give up Chris Middleton for Dante, then I think you won't. You pretty much have to do it. Like that's one way. I've always said, like if you can add that third guy without giving up Chris, then you're really cooking. Then you're really, then you really have something. I think. And um, so th- then I think yeah, Dante trading Dante becomes a lot more palatable. Um, the Bucks first, by the way, really just garbage picks that they have to offer. They have the the 24th overall in this weird draft. And then they can't move one until either 2024 or 2025. And the way the picks on the pick that they currently owe Cleveland are set up, it could defer. So I think like the best they could offer of their own picks is a 2024 that might have to defer until 2025 based on the Cleveland draft. And like you pointed out, this is a point I've been trying to make to folks as well. Like the unprotected first after Giannis could be long gone sounds great, but if you're trading an impact player. And all you have to show for it is a bad late, late first rounder in this admittedly pretty bad draft. Mm-hmm. Someone like Dante DiVincenzo or Eric Bledsoe and a pick that might not show up for five years. <laughs> that's very bad for you. That's very bad for your prospects of getting to actually use that pick. I mean, it's imagine you're watching somebody put up 30 points next to Giannis and you've got like a nice prospect and a pick that's going to convey four years a full election and change from now it's (laughs) it's you're not likely gms are not looking at that like salivating openly it's it's not great for them to do that
1: if it if it was chris paul i think oklahoma city could talk themselves into it just because he's only under contract for two years and so old but yeah you also have to think about you know who's actually coming back like that's definitely that's definitely part like going to the bucks in that scenario i'll skip around here a bit then since we're kind of like already touching upon it now the uh, Chris Paul stuff, where there was the rumor earlier on in the year that he wanted to go to Milwaukee. Um, his, I don't know if you saw like the the Twitter video that he posted after the Thunder were eliminated by the Rockets, but it felt final, like he was just gone. Then Billy Donovan, now head coach of the Bulls, uh, he leaves Oklahoma City. It feels like they're going to enter that rebuild they were supposed to enter when they traded Paul George and Russell Westbrook. Now, I I know there was a report from the Athletic that the sources who with knowledge of the Bucs thinking don't see them going that route. What do you sort of make of that? Like, do you believe um, the thing the, like, do you believe that the Bucks aren't really going to look at Chris Paul? Is that more of a, a posture play? Because I, I do think money is going to have to come into it there too. Two years and $85.6 million is a ton of money. He is coming off a second team all NBA season, but you have to look at it as, so we're going to have to give up stuff um, to bring this much money on our books. And I'm look, players need to get paid. I'm um, for all the money that they can get. I'm never going to try and save billionaires cash. I, I will never absolutely do that. But this is just the way teams are going to think. And so I do think that there's a distinct possibility the Bucks are like, even if they have the opportunity to get Chris Paul, that they might just pass on it.
2: Yeah, which is deeply frustrating. Um, and I agree with you on the uh, the billionaires part entirely. Um, so the the report that they were not, in fact, going to pursue Chris Paul, which certainly could be you know a little bit of chicanery it could be a smoke screen or whatever else cuz there are probably other teams involved although it really seems like Philly who's like i you might have to blurp this so i apologize in advance but it seems like the 76ers at every turn find a way to punch themselves in the dick very aggressively <laughs> it feels like they're going to somehow end up with Russell Westbrook and Ben Simmons and Joel M. Breed, which is just like such a nightmare for whoever they end up having as head coach um but Aside from that, um, but Philly could get involved. Like they, they could, the Bucks could be trying to, you know, drive down the price or whatever. Who knows? But what was cited in that Athletic report? I believe that was uh, Eric Name and Sam Amick. Amick. Yeah, Amick. I'm not. See, I, I used to be bad with names. I thought I got better. This pod, people are going to come away and say he still doesn't know names. Oh no! If someone who I has don't. like a borderline speech impediment
1: here? Don't do not even. This podcast <laughs> is used to it. I always apologize <laughs> profusely, so don't worry about it.
2: All right. At least, uh, at least I'm in good company, or maybe bad company. Um, <laughs> yeah, bad company's but, more like it. <laughs> but the well, the unfortunate thing about Chris Paul is the cost was cited, and then right after it said Milwaukee was worried about the cost. Like the contract numbers were there, not like anything about assets, but just like right. how much money he literally costs. And if you look at like the deals that you know we've drawn up on Eurostep, or, and other people have like. Bledsoe, uh, Hill, and Ursan Ilyasova get you there in, like, CBA salary matching. And then, like, for the trade to actually make real sense, like, probably Bledsoe goes somewhere else and, like, this team sends an asset and something to Oklahoma City. Like, there's one where, like, either the Knicks or the Pistons get Bledsoe and they send, like, either, I think, like, Tony Snell or, like, in the Knicks case, it's, like, two bad expirings. You can take your pick. And like some crappy pick or whatever, so they get like a nice point guard who won't have to worry about the playoffs and who will help raise their their floors. And you know the Thunder get even more stuff and, and less money on their books. But but that deal, that main deal, it's like just looking at the Milwaukee part, Chris Paul for those three guys, the Bucks take on nine point seven more million dollars on their books this year. So like it's salary matching and CBA parlance, but it's not an exact match. So that's the thing where like that could put them up into the tax this year. I think it almost certainly would unless they made some other drastic moves, which maybe they would. Um, but again, like uh, supposedly the Bucs just affirmed the honest that they're fine with paying the tax, but then like basically at, at the same time, we're getting this report that, that Chris Paul's too expensive. So I don't know. I don't get it. I think he is... If you don't have to give up any real future assets, like if, if you can get it done, I don't know if you can, if you can get it done for like a few second round picks and those guys, I just don't see how you don't do it. It seems like such a low cost gamble to make, especially considering like how useless blood. was in the playoffs and George Hill was low key bad in the playoffs this year mm-hmm. as well. I think you kind of have to go for it, but frustratingly it does sound like they're not as interested in that, which again, I don't know where else the path to improvement is necessarily, especially on that level. But that's where it sounds like the bucks are at, unless it's a smoke screen, which fingers crossed. Yeah, look,
1: so I'll gladly spend the billionaire's money. You get Chris Paul. <laughs> I think the bigger issue for me, and this would be the valid concern, is that a lot of people have said that it's like sort of easy to build the framework of a deal with OKC. And I tend to disagree because if you're giving up, let's say it's Bledsoe Lopez and George Hill, like those are three, as bad as Hill and particularly Bledsoe the past three playoffs have like were this past postseason, they're three major rotation players for you. And so Chris Paul's 35. He might be an upgrade if you're giving up two of them, but like he's not soaking up all those minutes. Maybe you believe that you can approximate the value of Brooke Lopez a little bit better just because of how centers are used on the cheap and free agency. I don't know that I'm not a big fan of how Brolo's deal is going to age, but I also think for what he does for you defensively now, um, and then combined with his three point volume, not necessarily always his efficiency, unless he's in Disney world, apparently this year, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I would buy into that. And so to me, it becomes a matter of, can you build a deal? where you're sort of, it's a poo-poo platter where it's, you know, it's Eric Bledsoe, there's Ersan Ilyasova, there's Robin Lopez, assuming he picks up his player option, there's DJ Wilson, and that money gets you there to being able to take back yeah. Chris Paul. What can you sweeten it with? And I think one of the biggest ones, like you know, Dante DiVincenzo, obviously, but now you get into a situation where it's five for one, the roster spot game is too difficult. And if you're OKC, unless you believe that you can flip some of those guys, the fact that they're not of immediate use to you, especially Bledsoe, who has two more guaranteed years left on his contract, that becomes a hang-up. And so one of the biggest you know, sugar coatings that you could add to this, let's say, would be can you reroute Eric Bledsoe somewhere to either into someone's cap space or for an actual asset? And a team that I've, you know, you name some teams, but another team I've come back to, they have the most cap space in the NBA, uh, Atlanta. Feels like they could use a, an Eric Bledsoe to play alongside a, a Trey Young. Uh, you have someone automatically who can just cover every other team's opposing um point guard and then even shooting guards if there's an opportunity to stash trey out a point guard which i feel like there almost never is i don't know if they would need something to do that because they're kind of building up the bucks in the process i don't know if they would give up they're not going to give up one of their young wings for him but that's just a suggestion i have if you can build something like that that should be the goal and if you're worried about giving up three of your most used players during the regular season for chris paul i actually understand that stance the money is just something i won't like it's Insofar as it's ever excusable and if you have a contender, it's never going to be for me. But this is Giannis's for now contract year. Like it's just it's and even if it's not, if he's signing the Supermax, it, that's a vote of faith in you and you're obligated to to just leap into the tax this season. And so that's really the only uh if you're trying if you have to give up Bledsoe Lopez George Hill for Chris Paul, that's the one that would give me pause.
2: Yeah, I mean I think if you can do it like the the Some Bucks fans actually, this is just a side note, in our Euro group Discord for the the listeners of the Euro Step. one idea that's been circulating that I find actually kind of intriguing is like if Houston is tearing down and bringing in a new coach who might actually want a center, like if you can get the Chris Paul deal done without trading Brook Lopez, maybe you swing Lopez over to Houston and pick up like some wing help from them, whether it's a Covington or maybe you buy really low on Eric Gordon or something like that. Which I think that is interesting too, just to stock up the wings and kind of get mm-hmm. more depth. Like I think today I looked at like Eric Gordon and Ben McLemore would work. I think McLemore's expiring next year, so something like that just to stock up the depth a little bit. I agree, these like three, four, five for one deals get super, super tricky. Mm-hmm. But I think like if you can do like Bledsoe Hill, maybe even that indie first. Maybe maybe uh, OKC okay, so has some interest in that. Who knows? Uh, but Bledsoe Hill, Urson, who Urson is like out of the rotation. So you basically consolidate your two okay point guards into one very good point guard, especially in the playoffs, for the cost of a pick and Ersan's salary. Then I think that becomes definitely a no-brainer. And again, I don't know if it's that easy or not, but if like I, – I, I think Atlanta might have a bad first coming in. I know Detroit doesn't, but they have like all their seconds. Even if OKC can like facilitate Bledsoe sort of somewhere for like two seconds, even if they're sort of protected – Like, what bad team, really? I think Eric Bledsoe is looked at now as this big negative asset. I don't think that's true. I think a GM of a team like that, who was like, they would like to win some games and and keep their jobs, as we already mentioned, this dynamic people tend to overlook a lot. Like, we can just get Eric Bledsoe for two bad seconds? He might be a top 50
1: regular season player, which is a really good player
2: all defense second team all defense this year like he can play and he's gonna he's gonna help raise your floor a bit uh especially for some of these teams i mean he's not like a great distributor but he can pass a little bit he can certainly play like uh with a ball dominant guy like if the bulls didn't have kobe white i think he'd be a good levine fit maybe they'll get rid of levine and he can play next to kobe white but like <laughs> these bad teams who need defense and really want to win at least a little bit i think bledsoe makes a lot of sense i think you're gonna find like, I don't think that's going to be an impediment to the deal. I, I do think, personally, I think the Bucks would be able to get it done. I think OKC would like to send Chris Paul to somewhere he wants to go, like Milwaukee. Uh, I think OKC likes being looked at as one of those franchises to kind of make people forget the whole Harden thing, but uh, yeah, I don't know. If Really, if it comes down to it and like Chris Paul gets traded for nothing but salary filler and it's pretty obvious the Bucks could have gotten in there, it will be like the latest and probably most disappointing chapter in the Bucks did something for X reason that also happened to save them quite a bit of money. That is something I did not
1: consider that if Chris Paul gets sent somewhere for like a reasonable asking price that the Bucks like could have met without really feeling it, that the optics on that would be absolutely terrible.
2: Like if, like, if it's like a somehow like the, like, okay, see, I don't think this would happen. Here's
1: the example I'd give you not to interject, but like if Philly no, gets him while giving up Al Horford, like, yep. the Bucs done fucked up somewhere, probably.
2: <laughs> yep. No, absolutely. I, I was thinking Tobias at first. But I, I think yep, that, fair too. I, but I, I think Tobias, like, I think Tobias can play. Honestly, like, if Tobias got rerouted to the Bucks somehow, I probably wouldn't hate it. I don't think there's any way to keep oh Milton <laughs> and Giannis and him. Like, I think he can play. I think he's fine. He's just not a max $30 million a year guy. He's, like, a 17-point-per-game guy, and that's fine. There's nothing against him. But they, they just saw him as something else for whatever reason. Um, but... Yeah, the Horford, like if it's Horford and like uh, – um, uh, who's the stretch for? Why am I blanking on his name? Um, whoever. Uh, if it's Horford and stuff, Horford, one of the worst – Oh, from Philly, ever. like Mike, Mike Scott or something along yes, like Yes, Mike that. Scott. That's what, I was going to say Mike Evans. I was like, that's a football player. <laughs> um, but yeah, if it's like Mike Scott and Horford and no picks, then yeah. I mean I think like the Deer District might just be engulfed in flames after that.
1: Uh, have you given thought to any other trade targets that you could see or you think the Bucks should
2: pursue? There's actually another OKC point guard who I am interested in, and I think, again, I have no idea what asking prices are going to be or if they would even want to move this player. Dennis Schroeder really impressed me in the playoffs, and he's a little bit younger. I think he's 27. I think he's expiring this next season on like 14, $15 million per. Again, I feel like OKC is kind of in a place where they're just like, we'll take all your picks and you can have these players. If he's gettable for like Bledsoe and stuff, which again, probably not, but who knows? Um, I would like that. Um, I think like the real desperation play, like I mentioned earlier, I think any team could probably get Aaron Gordon or Eric Gordon, excuse me, for basically like nothing right now from the Rockets. I just, I don't think like they signed this really big extension and then just played really, really poorly. You could try to roll the dice and say, you know, we're going to buy low. We think he's the player he has been in the past. That's like your desperation option. Um, I threw out some other, I threw out some names that really made Bucks Twitter upset. Now I feel like I'm, <laughs> but basically you just look at like the list of like, who's either like on a bad team that doesn't really mind being bad for a year or two, or who is like just grossly overpaid. And those are pretty much the guys. Cause again, the Bucks cabinet in terms of assets is pretty bare. I mean, like drew holiday would be great. I wouldn't want to give up Chris Middleton to do it. I don't think no. he's enough of an upgrade and I don't know if they can get him without doing that.
1: You also run into the issue, I don't know how many teams are going to think like this, but some of them aren't going to want to help out the Bucks
2: if oh, they think yeah. that Giannis like, is still in play. Lowry would be awesome, but I don't think there's any way that the Raptors ever, unless it's for Giannis, I don't think <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the Raptors are going to trade Kyle Lowry to the Milwaukee bucks I And mean, this is something I floated before this year, because I remember there was this, I feel stupid now for saying it, but there was some thought they might just tear it down and said they just decided to be very good, which I think more teams should decide to do that. But I remember floating on Twitter like, oh, man, if they tear it down, I wonder if the Bucs could get Lowry. And Anthony Doyle, of course, on a Kyle Lowry and Giannis-related issue, slides in immediately and goes, I don't think the Raptors are going to try and help out the Bucs. I was like, you know what? Fair point. So, yeah, like Miami, Dallas, Toronto, et cetera, but the, the, maybe the Lakers, the Warriors, I don't think they're going to be jumping out of their seats to say, here, this will help you contend and, and keep Giannis forever. I'm I'm with you on that one. I have I have three names for you, and they range
1: from super ambitious to medium ambitious to on the lower end. So I'll start from the bottom and work my way up. Uh, I don't really know what's going on in Chicago after the Billy Donovan hire. That seems like maybe like they might have more immediate ambitions than I thought. But a and didn't have the best year. But I'm inclined to also blame that a little bit on Bulls being the Bulls. But Thomas Adoransky feels like someone who might mm-hmm. be able to help them when you look at the playoffs.
2: You know, at first I thought you were gonna say like your low end was Zach Levine. I was like, go, oh my goodness, Dan, you are an eternal optimist. <laughs> um, yeah, Sato would be fine. It's one of those where like, you know, I almost feel bad because I've I've liked Sato for a while. I think he's a good player. I think if like if that's the guy you get after this horrible, like you don't make a coaching change, well, that- the player you bring in is Sato. That's tough. But I do like. I think he could be, a certainly a logical target, especially if they end up drafting yet another guard. Yeah, my thought process there was like. If you you
1: that's someone maybe you could get for your salary filler that doesn't include Bledsoe and then like picks. Like if it's I yeah. probably wouldn't give up a first for him, but if it's a second or if you could, you know, if they really like DJ Wilson for some reason, um, so that you keep the idea would be to keep Bledsoe, Middleton, and Giannis, Hill
2: and Lopez, and then add a a Sato. Um the other or name or even or even like if you trade everybody else, like bring him in as like a rotation guy. Okay. No, I like that. I like that. I would give up two seconds for Sato.
1: The medium guy that I had suggested, he might be on the ambitious end, just given how important he is to his team right now, but Devontae Graham, knowing that he's going to hit 2021 free agency, if Charlotte feels like they can capitalize on his value, and in that scenario, you're probably giving up a pick and prospect or two picks, but just what he can do off the dribble, how defenses collapse around him in
2: Charlotte, I would be a big fan of him in Milwaukee. I would too. I I assume I I just feel like Charlotte wouldn't give him up, but I also I guess I would have thought the same with Kemba Walker. So maybe 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 there is a chance that I would that would be a lot of fun. I think his game has some holes, but his pull up three point shooting, if it's sustainable, but it, if you're the Bucks, you kind of have to roll your dice on ifs right now. It would be great with Giannis. I just remember the name that made Bucks Twitter hate me, his teammate and backcourt mate Terry Rozier, who feels eminently available and who quietly hit 40 percent of his threes this year but he's again, always kind
1: uh, of been like a good off-ball player too and so if you put I don't know if he's what like I feel like he might give you less off the dribble creation than Sato which is been an issue but if you're just looking for pure spacing um where I don't know that you know if you want to give up Eric Bledsoe for him if you're that low in his contract sure but if you can replace like some of the Eric Bledsoe minutes uh he gives you another half-court outlet for sure he would definitely help Milwaukee
2: yeah, I'd like basically you'd have to throw him in the West Matthews role. He's not gonna run thirty pick and rolls a game with anybody, but he can spot up a bit and cut and create off the ball. Yeah, it's it wouldn't wouldn't hate that either. But again, I really hope the Bucks aren't touting uh, Terry Rozier as their big addition. But Devonte Graham, that would be that would be more intriguing. The more ambitious one, and I actually you mentioned Zach
1: Levine. Like I don't know what you if like it's Dante DiVincenzo in a future pick like if they're willing to sell that low on like if they like maybe Chicago, just because it's a new front office regime. And they're like, well, you know, we're going to be here like for at least four years or something. Like maybe we have interest in an incredibly loosely protected pick in 2024 or 20 with the option to defer to 2025 or something like that. Um, and maybe you could suss out a third team again. that might send something to them for, for Eric Butto. Zach Levine wouldn't be a bad fit in Milwaukee, but the name is plural that I was thinking of is can you latch on a, as a third team in a deal where Brooklyn's trying to get its third star, because I actually think Brooklyn has some really attractive trade packages. But if you're going after, I don't know who the guy is. Um, If it's in, you know, if if it's a Bradley Beal, you would think that the Washington wants to get younger than a Levert and a Dinwiddie. So can uh, Milwaukee kind of join that deal to send stuff to a Washington or whatever team Brooklyn's dealing with, where they're going to end up getting back Levert or even Spencer Dinwiddie because those two players help them a great deal uh, another name that the Nets could go after is Oladipo. I'm sure the Pacers would probably be more okay with Lavert and or Dinwiddie in, in that situation. So I'm not necessarily sure what the third star would be that Brooklyn is targeting, but that might be a deal um, to join because the Bucs can offer picks Dante DiVincenzo to the team that's giving up a... A higher in like maybe it's Orlando if if Brooklyn is like really high on Aaron Gordon and they're giving up Spencer Dimwitty um, either of those two players whether it's Lavert or Dimwitty would just be fantastic gets from Milwaukee it probably would require them unloading um, the clip of of cost controlled assets that they have at their disposal though
2: I would unload the clip for both of those guys which I don't know if that's feasible but like Dinwiddie and Levert just seems total – that seems all of a sudden – and I, I assume in this you're keeping Chris as well. Yeah, then and it was like whichever one of them you can
1: get because you obviously don't have enough stuff to get both. Um, yeah. But whatever one you can get I, I think is just an insta-fit.
2: Yeah, I do, I do as well. I'm a, Like Levert shooting a little bit concerns me from three, but there is a lot of upside there. I think Dinwiddie is just good. I, I think like again not probably as splashy, but – a much, much better fit at the point guard position. And maybe, I mean, he's taken leaps before from, you know, a fringe NBA player to a solid starter. Maybe in this perfect situation for him, he'd be set up to take another leap. He can, you know, his crypto and his game will take off at the same time. And <laughs> we'll see. Um, but like, I definitely Dinwiddie. I think I would, like Dinwiddie or Lavert. I would, I think Lavert is probably seen as the more attractive. I'm almost more inclined to give up the clip for Dinwiddie. And definitely like, Chicago, take your pick of anything besides Chris and Giannis that that we have available for Levine. I mean, that would, like Levine, Chris, and Giannis would just be incredible. But like, I don't know if that's possible. You never know. Um, yeah, that's on, yeah, the, I, that's definitely on the ambitious end of the spectrum. And I think
1: I agree with you that Dimouli's probably just uh, more scalable than Lavert. He's one of those guys that feels like he's gonna hit, uh, like or feel more comfortable, you know, pulling up from three off the dribble than rather spotting up, which could be the issue there. Sort of um, moving on, though, here. So one of the things that's probably not being talked about enough, at least nationally, is the Bucs have a ton of free agents themselves. And so looking at Sterling Brown, restricted free agent, Pat Connaughton, Robin Lopez has a player option, which I think he would exercise. There's Kyle Korver, Wesley Matthews has a player option. Who do you see leaving? Who do you see coming back? Is there at least one of those guys that you can identify as must keep from Milwaukee? Because it does seem like yeah, they need to try and improve the roster, but at least to some degree they do have to take care of their own because at least I'm looking at Wes Matthews as the guy for me that I'm like, well, he needs to come
2: back. No, you you took the words right out of my mouth there with Wes Matthews. I think he needs to be out of this cr- core of players, their number one priority. I know from some talking to some folks around the league, I don't like saying league sources. I like saying folks around the league. Um, <laughs> from talking to some folks around the league, I know the Bucs are interested in in keeping him I don't know if they necessarily have the best idea of what he's going to do. Um, they can't go over the cap to keep him without burning one of their cap exceptions. I believe they have the biannual and the mid-level. I don't know if they would use the mid-level for Wes. I guess we'll see how the rest of free agency shakes out. Um, I don't know if he would want to take another vet min or not. Maybe another one-and-one one to keep some flexibility and then kind of sign a nod-nod, a, nod, nod, a nudge-nudge, wink-wink deal right. two years from now when the Bucks have his early bird rights. Um, basically just tell him, you know, no matter what, if you want to come back again, we'll sign you for a little probably more than your market as a 36 year old swingman off of a ACL, I believe, or an Achilles, I believe. Um, but yeah, I think he needs to be the first priority. I think you got to figure it out whether he's your fifth starter on a more loaded starting five or your best bench wing. I just think he should be a priority. His defense, he was deserving of the one or two or whatever votes Chris Middleton got for all defense. I think I put him on my fake ballot just to give him the nod. Um, but I, I think he should have gotten a vote or two. He, he was that good. He defended the best wing players he, the Bucks played. He definitely
1: should have gotten more fourth-quarter minutes in the playoffs. <laughs> he oh. definitely earned oh.
2: <laughs> You know what's funny is that's so tied to one of their other big issues of like, you know, you could say, oh, Chris couldn't play more minutes in some of these games because of foul trouble. He picked up so many fouls, and I think it was like game one and three or game one and four because he was guarding Jimmy Butler the whole fourth quarter, and Jimmy Butler had his two best quarters of the playoffs going against Chris and not Wes Matthews, who did tremendous on him. So uh, it would have worked out better for literally everything if, if Wes played those minutes. But, ah, uh, well, so I, I think, honestly, like my initial thoughts for like an offseason plan for the Bucks right after game five was like get the new coach in there, which I don't know if that's happening now, and sit down with Wes and say, listen, we're actually going to play you in fourth quarters this time. Don't worry. Um, so maybe he's less inclined to come back. Who knows? Um, I don't I don't have any insight there. But I think he's the priority. I think Sterling Brown's going to leave, and I think the Bucks are going to be fine with that. Um, I, there's not, like, bad blood. They just never really played him consistently, uh, mm-hmm. and they didn't send him to Oshkosh to play with the Herd consistently. I, I mean, I think really, like, kind of a failure on the Bucks part of – and maybe these guys just aren't any good, him and DJ Wilson, the two in particular. I think they both have a chance to be, like, rotational wing players in different ways. But they just have never played. They just have not gotten reps. So I think he's going to go somewhere else and, and look for minutes. I think Pat Connaughton going to be in the deli situation where, like, if there's nothing really there, he probably comes back. But if some team, for whatever reason, saw something they liked and offered him, like, $8 million a year, Giannis is going to send one of those LeBron tweets, like, the minute the offer sheet is first signed when the Bucks could still match, and just be like, have fun, Pat, good luck. Or I don't even know if <laughs> He might not be restricted, but if he gets an offer, I, I don't think the Bucs will go and pay him, but I could be wrong. Um, yeah, I don't think he's Robin restricted Lopez, anyway, but, yeah, that's like yeah, – I don't, I don't think yeah. you
1: look at him and like, oh, we need to have him back.
2: <laughs> I would hope not. I mean the, the the Bucks like playing him a lot, but I don't think he's integral to what they do and, and, and anything like that. So I think, yeah, I think if somebody pays him, he's gone. Otherwise, sure, I mean bring him back as the 11th guy, that's fine. Um, Robin Lopez, I can't tell. I, I don't know how he feels about not really playing in the playoffs at all um probably not great but uh, who knows Uh, him five million though would be my like counter
1: even if he wants to leave
2: yeah and it's a deep center class i mean i've got rankings for all the positions and like there's a lot of centers who i think are going to end up making vet men like i i did like i gave them all numbers so i had robin lopez as the 14th best center like 19th is a guy like john henson Twenty sixth is like Jan Mahimi, who's like not exciting, but I, like an NBA player like Bismack Biombo is in the twenties. There's a lot of centers hitting free agency. It's like twenty sixteen
1: centers coming off those contracts.
2: It's, there's a lot of them, man. Hassan Whiteside's getting out here. Tristan Thompson's getting out here. Um, big money, big money guys, and they're not gonna get that again. But I, I yeah, I, I think he might just opt in just for that reason, although he could just be trade collateral. Did I miss anybody? Um, there's Kyle Korver, which I, he oh. might be a retirement candidate at this point too. Yeah. He's either going to retire or Bud's going to play him way, way too often. Whatever he <laughs> Or desires. be starting at the two spot for Milwaukee. Oh, oh, please don't speak that to the universe. Uh,
1: this is so kind of two questions rolled into one because I was, we all know what the Bucks could really use. And there's like, if they're going to let other free agents walk, I think like, you know, their, their wing depth after Giannis and Chris Middleton has never actually been too great, which is something I don't think has been talked about enough. They should have, like, the math on them is really tight. Like, if you assume that they bring back Ursan Ilyasova, um, and maybe they don't, but Robin Lopez exercises player option, even if you just pencil in Wesley, Wesley Matthews's player option, the number 24 pick hold, um, and then just cancel everybody else, like, they are, like, basically right up against the tax. Like, they have wiggle room under it, but it's, like, sub... I have them at sub 2 million if we're using this year's cap projections into next year, and so that should give them the, the, the flexibility necessary to spend the entire big MLE while staying under the apron, but you still have to go into the tax. And so we know that um, Mark Lassery said that they'll go into the tax. One, are you buying that? Like, do you think that actually happens? And then two, based off what you think there, are there any free agents that you're looking at um, in that MLE range that you really would like to see Milwaukee go after?
2: I'll believe it when I see it. At this point, I mean, I mentioned definitely where I'm at before. with you. Uh, with yeah, you, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, it's just like we've heard all this talk, and and the Bucks have been steadfast. Like when the time is right, which I I mean, sometimes they've it's sounded more like when Giannis's extension actually kicks in, which wouldn't be for a whole another year. But like when the time is right, we will totally do it. But then like, you know. I, I think Malcolm Brogdon would have helped more in the bubble than a 2020 bad first and and two future seconds, but we are where we are. And like, you know, I think some of these players, the bucks could have acquired. I mean, we served, um, you know, OKC was shopping Danilo Gallinari and he didn't complete a deal with the heat or they didn't complete a deal with the heat because he wouldn't sign an extension. So he was available. If you would guarantee him more years, the bucks are the one team in the league not looking to clear cap space for 2021 to sign honest, Maybe they could have gotten in there, but I'm sure it would have required taking on some extra money because Gallinari is very well paid and, and future money. And also, I mean, they didn't want to disrupt as much midseason, which sure. But also that, I mean, there's like all these moves. I mean, you even look at, you want to get real minuscule. I know you do. I do. I'm here for so, it. Let's get granular. So Sterling Brown hitting free agency, thus an expiring contract this year. The Bucs knew they could sign Marvin Williams as a buyout guy for, of course, a, a scaled minimum, uh, which is standard. I mean, there's nothing nothing cheap about that, this this first part. Um, so they could have just cut Sterling Brown, who never plays and never plays in Oshkosh and does not figure to be a part of the team's long-term future and eat his cap hit of um, $4 million, whatever it is. Not very much, not very much money. And he's a second-round pick on the last year of his rookie deal instead they cut dragon bender who and this will sound completely inconsequential dragon bender is like for the first time in his career learning how to play center with the wisconsin herd as the 15th <laughs> guy in the bucks roster like kind of like the very blurry poor man's like you can see the outlines of a brook lopez kind of player mm-hmm. like a big guy who can go vertical who can definitely shoot threes he hit him both in Oshkosh and in Milwaukee last year. And like everybody was excited about the way he was playing. Like He was actually coming along and, and learning the center skills. He still followed too much, but like he, he was looking promising. It was looking like the Bucks had found another young, good big man like Christian Wood. They cut Dragan Bender because his contract wasn't guaranteed. So it saved like 2 or $3 million to cut Dragan Bender and not Sterling Brown. Sterling Brown goes on to have one of the worst seating game runs of any possible player because they were down a few guys and he had to play point guard. and He just couldn't do it. And then he didn't play at all in the games that mattered, and now he will leave. So very small thing. But it's like one of those things where at every possible turn, like the thing that has saved money, has just so happened to be the thing that was done. And and this year now, it hasn't happened yet. But what we've seen from Chris Paul, the stumbling block is his dollar amount, which is more of an issue for like the back end, the financials, than it is for actually the team building in some ways. I mean, it's kind of an issue for both, but the way it was reported, so I think it was intentional, the literal cost of him, which I I don't think should be that much of a factor. So I'll believe it when I see it in terms of options. um, I don't know. I don't know who's going to be available. I feel like it's going to be a very weird summer. I know one guy that uh, sort of like Indie Bucks Twitter is all about is DJ Augustine. Well, I think it's like a good point guard. I think he could be available if the magic want to shift to more Markel Fultz. I think, Like, there's a few – there's not a ton of good guard hitting free agency, but there's, like, enough where I think he could fly under the radar. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Malik Beasley I think is probably going to be too expensive for an MLE, but if he wants to go to a really good team, that would probably give him a good amount of touches. I would love that. I think he's going to be too expensive. I think he's legit good and probably not leaving Minnesota. But that would be a lot of fun. In terms of forwards, I'm not really sure. Like, I've had Dario Saric ambitions for a while, but that position – just feels so low on their list of needs. Paying Jay Crowder would be such a Bucks thing after he torched them, but I don't even think that'll happen. But if they did, I don't know if I would particularly look forward to it because, again, sort of a need, but not really, and I could just totally see him shooting, like, 24% from deep and anything next year. That just feels like a super bad Bucks move, but who knows? I feel like he
1: and Drogic are going to get, like, record one-year deals from the Heat as they plan for 2021 free agency, but... If you give Jay Guarantee Jay Crowder 4 years at the MLE and Miami's not offering him a long, longer term deal than one year like maybe that gets him I actually would like him for the Bucks because he does fancy himself like someone who could do stuff off the dribble but like those are that's just like an adventure that
2: maybe they don't have the bandwidth for on yeah, offense. And, and the guy the other guy you mentioned Dragic like I don't think he's attainable for that which is why I didn't Oh yeah, I didn't it. even think about him for the Bucks just because they have Hill and Bledsoe
1: already and I know Dragic would help but um, he, I can't imagine if he's available at the MLE, of course. But now at this point, I feel like he's priced himself out of that range.
2: Yeah, I, I agree as well. And then there's like a bunch of player option guys, like Mike Conley, Demar Derozan, Tim Hardaway Jr., even Fournier. I think they all probably opt in in this weird, weird ass year. And if they don't, I don't think they sign for the MLE. Um, I've almost talked myself into trading for Demar Derozan just because oh I feel like the wow. Spurs don't care. Oh, yeah, we're times. here, we're here, we're here. <laughs> um, I said, I did say almost but uh, I don't think they're going to be able to sign anybody like that. See, so the
1: names that I've been thinking of, so Evan Fournier was my highest end one. I'd also kicked around Sarich as well, but it's like you said, I don't know that he that he definitely did more uh, from a creation perspective when he was coming off the bench with Phoenix in the bubble, but just positionally, I just feel like he's, he's best off at the four, and that's clearly not what the Bucs need. Uh, you could think lower end, Justin Holiday would be a great fit basically everywhere. He played a lot of backup four for Indiana this year, but he can play the two and the three as well, and then not someone you could look at to create, but he'll he'll hit threes in transition, and and he'll hit spot-up threes in the half-court as well. And Alec Burks, if you're looking for some, like, lower-end um, guy who could create his own shot, but Evan Fournier, if you were trying to aim a little bit higher, should he opt out because he wants to play the longer-term game? Like, Orlando might be a team that's willing to talk sign-and-trade scenarios with you, which, of course, hard-cap you at that point, but maybe the Bucks prefer that because it gives them, like, a built-in excuse. Um, but anyway, so... I don't know what you would have to give up, um, but maybe that's something that they would consider because he would be intriguing Milwaukee because all of a sudden he's like something like their third or fourth option, which is probably the role that he's best suited for as opposed to the pseudo number one, number two that he's been in Orlando for so long.
2: Yeah, I'm a little worried like if somehow you swap Bledsoe and stuff for him because he's been kind of a playoff pumpkin performer as well. Um, but I do, like, if you can get him for a minimal cost, I, I think it's a good gamble and probably one of the best ones you'd be able to take. Yeah, my thoughts um,
1: were, like, expirings and, like, maybe the indie first or something. Like, if that if Orlando's yeah. just going to lose him and Jonathan Isaac isn't playing next year, um, Chumo Keke is going to be, like, his, you know, the redshirt year that he's coming off of from his injury. Maybe they're kind of leaning towards a rebuild a little bit. I, I don't know. But if they're willing to do something like that where, oh, we got a pick for him, uh, that would be intriguing to me if i'm milwaukee not a no-brainer though for them but just something that if you were trying to be aggressive uh, it it definitely has the potential to backfire as you mentioned
2: i think that'd be like the the first up your sleeve deal right like you 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 take it you say okay we'll think about this you look around for like some real home run swings but that's probably the first one you go back to if nothing else ends up materializing i like that idea a lot uh the last thing i'll ask you i've kept you longer than i anticipated
1: but (laughs) Uh, what's the most undercovered thing about this team misunderstood thing about this team? Is there something that I didn't ask that you want to talk about? Uh, we already really got on the Chris Middleton soapbox and I am sad to say that I was there alone, apparently. Oh. Um,
2: <laughs> I had him a second team all NBA this year. let's, let's right, so you have one foot on
1: the Chris Middleton soapbox who should have been third team all NBA, I thought. um I know a lot of the way that players are eligible positionally, but there is still a way to to finagle it where he was on instead of Russell Westbrook when you look at where players were eligible,
2: that surprised me a little bit. But that's that's a that's a different conversation. We could do a whole podcast on just this one issue. Like Chris Middleton literally got guard votes and forward votes and had more total votes than either of the third team guards. But I guess because he didn't have more guard votes than players who were only eligible at guard, right. he missed out. That seems like a very a very broken way to do it and not like not actually helping with your. You're rethinking of positions, league office. So work on that one. <laughs> um, and really, I'm only fired up because like I don't know how many more shots. I mean, you said like you mentioned, you've covered, you've done terrific for knowing the Bucs on this podcast. There's so many guys out this year that it's like a lot easier to call someone top ten. I don't know how many All NBA chances Chris Middleton will have. This may have been his best shot. I would have really liked for him to have gotten one of them. But regardless, um, one under the radar thing, and I think this is something I've thought about more and more and more as we went through the bubble. So, like, people, and this is, something like, I think Sam Fandiari first brought this up to me as a question. I've thought about it ever since. Sam's a brilliant man. What position is Giannis, right? Like, is Giannis a big or is Giannis a big wing? Like, is he a big who does wing stuff or a wing who does big stuff? And at first, I kind of was like, does, does it really matter? Like, who cares, skill sets or skill sets? But I do think there's something to the idea of, like, the Bucks need to probably find a way to make him play like a big more unless he does suddenly develop this three level scoring. Maybe, maybe this becomes a non-issue by next season. I don't think that'll be the case. I'm a Wisconsin sports fan. We're not taught to believe in the unbelievable, at least the <laughs> unbelievable good. Um, but like, so if, if he's largely the same player, you know, it takes some more threes, but largely, you know, clearly at, at his best getting to the rim and, and every player is even better getting to the rim off of an action than they are by themselves. You kind of, at some point, need to have a pretty hard conversation with Giannis to get him off of the ball more, which I think optimizes him and optimizes the Bucks. No player is interested in doing that. I mean, this is the thing, Dwight Howard, for however long, like he wanted, this is a diff, slightly, like, tilted, things are different now, but he wanted to post up, which is, like, the equivalent of Giannis always handling the ball. Like, he wants to have the ball and control his own possessions. And when Dwight Howard played really good defense and ran a bunch of pick and rolls, he was like maybe the best player in the league for a hot second there, one of the best five (laughs) players for a while there. Let me not get too spicy. I don't care that much about the Dwight Howard debate. But the point remains in that, like, you really needed him to do something a little bit different, and it was really hard to get him to do that. And I think because Giannis is generally, when he's not being called, you know, a guy with no skills or whatever, he's generally looked at fondly across the league, especially personality-wise. I don't think he gets the same criticisms, I do think the Bucks are going to have to have some hard conversations about, like, you need to have the ball a little bit less on the top of the key, and you need to have it a little bit more, like, after you set a screen and roll to the rim, or after you cut, or after you, like, post up on the baseline right next to the rim while something else is happening. And I think that becomes a lot easier if you get a player like Chris Paul than it does with, like, Eric Bledsoe out there. Right. But, That's, like, it's, like, a little, like, it's, like, not their number one or number two problem. It might not even be top five, but I think it's going to be, like, maybe long-term Giannis, one of the two most interesting things with the terms of his career is, like, A, will he ever become a good enough perimeter player to justify all the touches he has? And, B, if not, how does he reckon with that? How does he reckon with being the two-time reigning MVP and also, like, a team maybe telling him, we can't have you having the ball this much in the playoffs. It's a very tricky thing, and I think it almost sounds like overthinking it, but also like, watch how good Miami and Toronto were at neutralizing him largely for large parts of those series. I, it's like I, no one really talks about it. Again, the Bucks have other stuff on the table. Like, I don't know how much of that is the Bucks failing the scheme. I don't know how much of that is Giannis not really wanting to be Dwight Howard out there, you know, running a bunch of pick and rolls over and over. I don't know. It's interesting. It's something to look at. No one's really talking about it, but it might end up being hugely important for both team and player. That's a
1: really fascinating conversation to have. And it's I, you already sort of mentioned this, but it's an easier conversation to have if you have a better ball handler around him, if you want him to do more roll man stuff. And I think I didn't really go to it often enough, probably, but the Heat were really able to like derail the Middleton Giannis pick and roll that's probably a lot harder to do if it's a Chris Paul Giannis pick and roll. Uh, you also, I think in that scenario, I'm not like, you need to probably commit to more minutes of Giannis just straight out at the five too. Yeah. I know he logged a career high in possessions at the five this year, but you got to go even more than, I think he was at like around 500 for the season. That's just not well, anywhere near enough.
2: It's not. And like, even just going off that, like there's a lot of times when he's quote unquote at the five and like Ersan Ilyasova is playing drop coverage as the nominal center on defense. Like, they need to play with him more the way the Heat use Bam out of bio. Like that is – I can't – like I keep reading and about Bam and watching Bam and how the Heat are utilizing him, and I just keep thinking like Giannis in that role would be truly phenomenal. It's a hard sell to Giannis to be Bam out of bio when he's already Giannis Tadokounmpo. Right.
1: Uh, no, for sure, 100%. But that is something interesting to monitor moving forward. But like you said, what they do this season kind of informs that and then would simplify – that process and look you can probably get without even changing depending on who you get this off season without even changing Giannis's role you can probably drastically improve a lot of this though seems like as you already mentioned too just based off the reporting from the athletic that this is still going to be a money thing and um, probably I won't say more so than ever but if it wasn't going to be at one point following the pandemic the gate revenue lost specifically mm-hmm. this season the gate revenue that's probably going to be lost next season um, that might make them reticent to go after a, a Chris Paul or even just go after like spending the entire MLE and I don't think we've mentioned it already a bunch of times but I don't think you can get away with that you arguably shouldn't have gotten away with it already but you can't get away with it anymore
2: I mean if they, so if they do some some tricks to get under the tax at this point that's just like an incredibly bad look in my, and I think that's the kind of thing that like if there's any way that Giannis ends up getting out unexpectedly, I think it would be a situation like that. So we'll see. I'm not saying they will do that. I don't think they will do that, but we will see. It's it's one of those things where my official position right now is let's wait and see what happens because I'm not just going to take, you know, the word of, like, you don't, you're don't you not just going to believe someone's going to change after they've done X thing for X amount of time. I guess that's, like, deeper and maybe sadder than it really should be <laughs> for a basketball podcast, but uh, you got to see the change to believe it. Ty, thank you for giving me basically 90 minutes
1: of your time, way longer so than I expected sorry. to keep. No, <laughs> Bucks are going to have one of the most fascinating off-seasons, and it almost kind of has nothing to do with Giannis's contract decision, in my opinion, just because he's going to be on the Bucks next year. Guys, if you do not follow Ty on Twitter, please remedy that immediately at TyWindish, T-I-W-I-N-D-I-S-C-H. He's, his content is great out there. Please listen to his podcast, as we mentioned at the top of, of this podcast. Um, Ty, I'm sure I'll be pestering you again uh, in the future, maybe the near future if the Bucks do something seismic. So thanks again for your time, and I will definitely be talking to you soon, whether or not you want to be talking to me soon.
2: Trust me, man, this was a pleasure for me. I will try to not <laughs> somehow answer like a very simple question with a 15-minute diatribe about Coach Bud or whatever else <laughs> I get into talking about, but thank you so much for having me. I would love to come back whenever. Um, and yeah, I think... No matter what happens, literally any outcome, the Bucks are going to be fascinating this summer, which you can't always say, even with the Giannis team. So, yeah, this will uh, this will be something.